everyone remain calm. Back for more, huh? Oh, yeah. Ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. But then later there's running and then screaming. Somebody talk to me! What is happening? Welcome to Jurassic World. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Jurassic Park Podcast. How long is it going to take for that to spread around the globe? This was all John Hammond's dream. Hold on to your butt. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 309th episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we're here to discuss all things Jurassic Park. So I hope everybody's having a great Valentine's Day out there. I hope you're celebrating well uh, with all of your loved ones. And of course, a uh, a happy follow-up, I guess you could say, to Jurassic World Dominion's trailer release. I think think this is truly where the fun begins. We got to strap in because I think this marketing train that's, that's coming right now for Jurassic World Dominion is about to hit us like a Quetzalcoatlus attacking a plane, if you know what I mean. But anyway... In this episode, we are going to debut episode two of the Lost World Book Club featuring Ben, the host, chatting with Jurassic Dave, followed by Stephen Ray Morris. Now, initially, this would have been a, uh, a big group chat with myself included, but we had to split it apart. It was like this whole scheduling thing. We didn't end up recording all together, so I'm sad I couldn't chat with everybody this time around, but you are certainly in for a real treat when you hear these three dive into the middle portion of the book where I think the Lost World really picks up some steam. Now this episode is going to be covering the third configuration through uh, and stopping at the fifth configuration and of course the Lost World book club will continue into March so be sure to read along with us and uncover all those different layers how they all tie into the films how everything's different and uh, of course what could be used in the future Like I said, our next episode will be um, in March, I think the 14th, so please be sure to send in your thoughts on that portion of the book, covering the fifth iteration, stopping at the end, um, and we will add all of your thoughts into that episode of the book club. So please be sure to send those in by uh, March 12th. That is the deadline. Send your audio recordings to JurassicParkBookClub at gmail.com. Now, before we get started, I'd like to take care of some quick business. So if you missed it, I know there was a lot going on last week. We did put out a bonus episode taking a look at the trailer for Jurassic World Dominion. I was able to sit down for (laughs) nearly an hour uh, and went scene by scene through the trailer. I know it's a, you know, a very short trailer, two minutes or so, whatever it was. And uh, it took me an hour to talk about it, but I was able to break it down as much as I possibly could on the fly. So please give that one a listen on all of your podcasting platforms. Now over on our website, Tom Jurassic was uh, kind enough to write up a big analysis of the Jurassic World Dominion trailer, so please uh, go to JurassicParkPodcast.com to check that one out, or you can find the link in our show notes. And uh, over on YouTube, uh, last week I was able to do a toy hunt. Uh, You know, I I uploaded a toy hunt in the midst of, uh, you know, a lot of drama surrounding Mattel, which, you know, thankfully has resolved itself uh, fully, it seems. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we remember. We do remember. Um, so I do have a toy hunt that went out there. And, of course, I did a uh, reaction 
to the Jurassic World Dominion trailer in another video. So please go check out that one. I, uh, I set up the recording software and the video and stuff like that, and I was like, all right, let me see what's going to happen here. I'm not, I, I don't typically, like, go through the roof when I watch something for the first time. But boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I was, I was totally wrong. I, uh, this one just hit me in, in all the perfect ways, and man, that, that reaction, uh, was something else. So, so please go check out my reaction video over on our YouTube channel. Um, I did I did do a live stream last week, but uh, I was also testing out brand new software uh, for the stream, and a lot of things didn't go the way I had planned, so I ended up just deleting that one, so if you're looking for that one, it is not on there anymore. Um, but this week, we will have, uh, I believe, another toy hunt. Uh, we will have a live stream. Hopefully, the software goes better this time. Fingers crossed. I don't know. Um, but uh, we will be discussing, of course, the Jurassic World Dominion trailer, as well as the uh, next hit for Beyond the Gates. We've got a new item coming from Target, so uh, that'll be interesting to find out what that is. I think it's a legacy collection item. But, uh, yeah, be sure to tune in to the live stream Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But this is an extremely long episode so i'm gonna stop talking because this one's like over three hours so why don't we go ahead and get this episode kicked off by diving into the second episode of the lost world book club i wish dr grant were here he'd write the most amazing article about this you need that guy Got your nerd book. I appreciate that. It was kind of preachy. You had to share a few campfire stories with my uncle. No, did you read Malcolm's book? <sighs> Just the parts they didn't like. I read your book, and then my teacher told me about this other book by Danny Backer, and he. I read both of your books. I like the first one more. Well, it's two things that we have in common. Welcome to the Lost World Book Club. Today I'm chuffed to bits to be again joined by two excellent Jurassic Park community members, Jurassic Dave 93 and Stephen Ray Morris. Jurassic Dave 93 is a JP collector, an excellent Jurassic toy photographer, as well as co-host of the Star Wars Television on Victoria Cantina YouTube channel. Stephen Ray Morris is founder and host of See Jurassic Right, a fantastic Jurassic podcast in which Stephen gives great insight to all things Jurassic Park along with brilliant guests, community member interviews and official Jurassic Park world creators. Due to scheduling, today I'll be talking to David first, followed by Stephen, after which we will be playing our fantastic listener audio messages. So with that being said, let's saddle up and get this movable feast underway. Hey Dave, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. Um, I wanted to kick things off by asking uh, which came first, the Lost World novel or the Lost World movie? Oh, definitely the Lost World novel. So the movie was, what, 97? 
Yeah, yes, 97. The novel was 95, I believe, right? Okay, fine. So did you did you read that when you when it first came out? No. Um, my recollection is uh, when the movie came out, I actually have my original copy here. I got a paperback through a book order at a school, and it came with the movie logo printed on the paperback. And it says, uh, now a major motion picture, so... Yeah, I, I was aware. I wanted the book. Um, I got it, and I don't believe I ever read through it. I got through it, and I, I guess I would have been 13 or so, uh, 11 or 13 at the time. Um, and, yeah, it was a little bit over my head, I guess, with the, the concept and everything. and didn't interest me as much, so I never got through it when I was a kid. So after you'd watched the movie, how long was it till you revisited the novel? Probably that summer or that, that fall of that year, 97, 98, early 98. I'm just guessing. What did you think of the novel after seeing the movie? Was it hard to sort of reconcile the two things or were you able to sort of pull out the similarities? No, my I don't think my mind, my young mind, <laughs> could even wrap the, my head around that the, the characters weren't the same. A lot of the characters aren't in, in the novel from the film. Uh, it was just over my head for, for being so young. I was in middle school at the time. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I watched the f- uh, movie first. Um, so I just accepted it as a sequel to the movie Jurassic Park. And, uh, and then I actually read the Lost World novel before I read Jurassic Park, the novel. So it was completely all over the place and very much the wrong way around. And yeah, I remember thinking the first time I read the novel, just how different it was from the film. Um, but funnily enough, since reading it more recently, I've kind of, there's actually quite a lot in there that you can see when they when they made the screenplay for the for the movie they they pulled quite a lot out mm-hmm. of the novel they've just kind of rejigged it really and moved mm-hmm. different aspects of the story around and um sort of reformed it so it's not as far away from the book's not as far as away away from the movie as i initially thought it was you know now that i've read it again yeah, with a fresh set of eyes going back this time, yeah, a lot of the Sarah Harding stuff, um, the dialogue is almost line for line what, what made it into the movie, and a lot of the stuff that Dodgson and his party does is what the hunters do. So it's a lot of the same things um, you can see, you know, pulled right from the novel. Um, and, you know, this is one of the ones, too, that they're actually still pulling things on some of the, the new films. Um, like the part uh, where Sarah is woken up by the um, it was the Triceratops or Stegosaurus. Uh, that's kind of what they used in Fallen Kingdom with Owen being woken up by the Cenoceratops, uh, things like that. So it's nice to see that they're still mining uh, both these books uh, for content in the new trilogy. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, Sarah, um, as well, because she's quite she she's she's sort of the same, but a little bit different in the novel as well. She seems a bit more sort of um, uh, what's it called? A bit, a bit more Lara Croft in the way that she sort of goes about it. She's quite sort of happy to throw herself uh, into situations. And she's, she seems to be quite action-packed. I quite enjoyed, mm-hmm. you know, that. And I wondered whether or not they would um, carry Claire's character in Dominion um, a bit like Sarah Reed's in the in the first novel. I kind of feel like she's heading sort of that way with 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 a sort of having a more um, action-packed role. Yeah. No, I, I just, you know, even at the time in, in the 90s, it was definitely a pretty progressive time. But to get a character written the way that she is, she's progressive, she's independent, open-minded. I really enjoyed the the scene where she's uh, getting cleaned up in the, the trailer, talking with Kelly. 
um, and try and push him back against a lot of uh, stereotypes against women and, and stuff in the in the novel. And yeah, like you said, she's a action packed real go getter. Take it into her own hands, get things done. Yeah, I agree with you completely there. I like that trailer seat as well. I think it's 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 well written, and I think it's it's good that it's included in the book. Um, it, it's it's definitely because there's a lot of sort of old fashioned opinions and stuff and i think it challenges that head mm-hmm. head on for sure uh one of the characters i found really interesting in the novel is the whole dodgson storyline because we've not we see we see um the hunters versus the gatherers in the lost world movie but dodgson individually himself um he's quite a character in this um he's not a very nice mm-hmm. person at all and it does make me wonder no. again like you were saying how they've mined the story whether the dodgson that we're going to see in dominion will be in any way like the character we get in the novel or whether or not mm-hmm. the storyline will support support that uh yeah i hope so obviously he's going to be a lot older in dominion but man he is just a uh, no good dude uh it's nice to get a, a familiar character back from the first novel and to just see how how ruthless and kind of disgusting he can be um so yeah, yeah and it, it kind of i guess almost seems like they pulled a lot in to give to Mills and Fallen Kingdom with the, yeah. the way he regards, you know, human life and things like that. That's true. I hadn't really thought about Mills, but you're right. It's more, it's more about the end goal and, and it doesn't really matter what happens along the way, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So thinking about the characters in the middle third of the novel, um, who do you most like reading about? Who's your favorite character in this part of the book? Um, I think it's probably Malcolm. Um, he, he, you know, he's not the same as he was in the first novel in Jurassic Park. He's not the same character as he was in the films. Um, I, I enjoy the long exposition about what he's thinking and his meandering until he finally gets to his point of what he's trying to tell you, um, even loses me. It's like, where are you going here, Ian? And he always brings it back around at the end to, to get to his point that he's trying to make. Um, and I just, I, I sort of look at him as like the mouthpiece for probably what Crichton was thinking. Um, and I also think in a, in a subtle way, he's trying to show how naive Malcolm is in a way, showing that all scientists, all science is naive when you don't really truly understand everything that you think you understand, even when it's coming from someone in the novel like Malcolm, who is so sure of himself and almost backed up in the way he's written. And you feel like Crichton himself is going, no, he's right about everything. But I question, is he? Yeah, definitely. I think Malcolm's a really uh, an excellent character in the in the novel here. And he, he works really well with Levine because they're they're quite contrasting to each other, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And um, Yeah, like a yin and yang. Yeah. And Malcolm has this kind of calm way of putting up with him really but you're right he, he definitely drifts off Malcolm some of some of the uh, some of the bits in the story he, he sort of goes off on a tangent doesn't he and almost loses loses where he's where he's headed with the point yeah. he's trying to make even there's even like cases where Thorne like picks him up he's like Ian, Ian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's trying to sort of bring him bring him <laughs> back to the the subject yeah definitely hand. um so Jumping into this third of the novel, I, we, we start off with the interior. So we've just had, Arby's just had his dream um, in the in the trailer there, which is more than likely a, is, is more than likely a reality um, with the trailer being uh, possibly on the game mm-hmm. trail. But, you know, we, we don't know at this point whether that is the case or not. Uh, Malcolm Thorne and Eddie, they've set off uh, down to the InGen lab facility to look for Levine. Um, what do you think of this bit of the of the book where they where they find it and they they go inside? Oh, it's creepy trying to imagine um, how dirty and overgrown it is. 
and even the bit where they get into the the clean room yeah. and and they remark about how how clean it is um my mind goes to the aesthetic of the film i think i try and place a lot of that with the mossy uh ferns overgrown cracked bits everywhere they mentioned about like the my favorite part is it was like the monitors having like a almost like a scum on them um but I like it. It's it's dark and scary, and I think that's some of the stuff that I liked the best from the film, was the abandonedness of the island, um, seeing things that were gone, and and I tried my in my mind try to imagine almost like I don't know if you've played the Trespasser, uh, that horrible game from the '90s where yeah. she's just alone <laughs> on the island. It's sort of how I imagine that part. Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. I think it's really cool. I I think the dark, like you say, the dark, dingy environment. Um, the abandonedness of it makes it really intriguing as well because as they're going through the building, I mean, they just don't know what they're going to find. Um, interesting that they find signs of someone being there. So obviously Levine's been there. And I like as well the, the description Crichton gives about the Evian bottles and the, the rip bag and also the fact that he's left the candy bar wrappers lying around. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of feeds into the, the science um, the point of view that anything you touch or anything you do has a knock-on effect and it's kind of feeding into the candy bar wrappers is kind of feeding into later on in the story where they play a significant part in the high hide so I sort of I think mm-hmm. that was like a little way a subtle way of Crichton sort of dropping that in so that we it made sense later on when when Levine yeah. drops his wrapper yeah I hadn't thought of that um, it kind of shows you know how he's a little sloppy um, he does the other thing with the uh, the parasaurs um, in the high hide, interfering with them and their behavior in the herd. Um, yeah. And, and we, we see later how important that is to to Malcolm, um, how he thinks that he can observe things at first, uh, you know, until uh, Dodgson gets there and he's real mad about the uh, disruption with the eggs from the Tyrannosaurus. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely setting up the character. Yeah. And um, also we get Ed- Eddie's confused by the whole place, to be honest with you. I mean, Eddie's quite a different character in this, um, in the book uh, instead of the movie. And I, I love the fact that uh, I like the little nod to the snake. Uh, he gets scared by the snake in the in the facility there. And that's a little bit of a nod mm-hmm. to when Backer is in the waterfall there and the snake climbs down his shirt and he gets eaten by the Rex. Yeah. I thought that was quite cool, but but also how Ma- uh, Malcolm's explaining to Eddie what happened uh, at Jurassic Park, and he gives a little bit about John Hammond, and it kind of sets it up and sort of brings the first novel into the second novel. Yeah, and th- there's an element of like mystery too when they're they're looking through uh, the computer files and they find like the printouts and stuff, and they're trying to to figure out what has gone on in this facility, you know. Um, because, you know, like to the reader, to even to the moviegoer, it's kind of a, a hard sell that we're on a second island here. Yeah. Why? You know, because it, obviously there was no plan for it from, from the first novel or the first movie. So it, it does a good job of, of explaining what Site B was. And almost reframing the, the first novel in a way when like Malcolm is explaining, uh, you know, like the showmanship of, of Hammond, how everything was a lie, even the little presentation they were given in the first novel yeah. Um, about where the dinosaur hatchery and stuff like that and, and going, well, now here we are, we're seeing the, behind the curtain of what really happened. It's quite cool as well. It's a kind of a back-to-front Star Wars reference there when he, he says it's like the dark side of John Hammond's <laughs> ambition. <Yeah. laughs> so I thought that, uh, that was quite cool. It, it's interesting because I, th- I think I'm right in saying that Mal- um, Crichton wrote The Lost World. I think it's his first sequel that he wrote, and it was very much 
as a sequel to Jurassic Park, the movie. I think he mm-hmm. had that in mind when he was writing it. And some of these, uh, the way that some of the scenes in this novel read, I feel that the pacing's a little bit different to what we got in Jurassic Park. It's almost like he was thinking of it more like a movie and less like a, a novel story. I don't know if you picked up on mm-hmm. that at all. Um, yeah, I did. It it's it seems slower than the first uh, book with like less things overall happening in this middle third as compared to the middle third of Jurassic Park uh, that we spoke on in, in the last uh, book club. Um, but yeah, it, you can. T- I believe I heard that as well that he wrote this book as so- a sort of a blueprint for a screenplay uh, to the film. And yeah. I noticed things um, in like in the first one with the land cruisers and stuff it were, were kind of like actual safari vehicles and stuff and they, they did have the the jeep or yeah did they have the jeep wranglers in the first one but it's they're quite clear in this one that it's ford explorer the electric ford explorer uh dodson brings the jeep wrangler and in my mind i'm like well he picked those because those were in the film you know having hindsight 2020 you can see this is where the franchise is going and i'm going to include these in my book Definitely, yeah. I think you're absolutely right with the Explorer of the Jeep. I mean, he's just he's just pulled them straight out from the first film mm-hmm. and stuck them straight into the novel, hasn't he? So we we then get to Arby chapter. Uh, it's not a long chapter, but basically this is Arby logging into the Site B network. Um, I think it's necessary because the dynamic of the story, it's kind of like we've got these different storylines all going on at the same time. And by mm-hmm. Arby... And the trailer being able to connect up to the cameras across the island, it enables Crichton to sort of jump really between each bit of the story. Um, and I like how we get different scenes later on. For example, when there's a stampede, or um, there's a bit which we'll get to where um, uh, Howard King is in the car, Dodgson's um, not there anymore, and he hears the electric whir of the uh, the Explorer. Mm-hmm. And that shoots past him. And it's kind of, I, I like the way that there's all these different stories going on at the same time and they're all basically having effect on each other. Oh, no, yeah, I, I enjoyed that a lot too. Um, I enjoyed uh, the tech side. It's very heavy in this middle part. He goes into a lot of detail of the, of the technology and you can tell as an author, he really prepared not only with the science and the uh, theories and things that he learned um, in preparation for, for writing both novels, but in this one, he, he really dove deep into the technology. And there's a lot of things that are quite prevalent in, in our society even today. He mentions about all everything being lithium-ion battery-powered, yeah. uh, just the idea of electric vehicles, which are seem like they're right around the bend here in, in everyday life. Um, and yeah, and it just, he, he, was, he had his finger on the pulse, I think, and was able to see into the future you know, where this technology is going you know, from the 90s, 20, 25 years later. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah. And with that, I think I really enjoyed the more time that we spend where they explain how they unpacked the crates to get the vehicles yeah. out and assembling like the high hide and stuff. That's something that you, you don't get in a film. You get to spend more time and see the logistics of, of how these things worked when in, in the film, it's just a, a cut scene to the trailers rolling across the hills. No, I agree with that. Definitely. And you're right. It's, it's like a lot of the technologies you could just place in modern day uh, in the modern day world it, it, it's pretty he it, it did it with Jurassic Park and the Lost World actually he was able to just see what was coming down the line it's like the, the monitors in the explorers you know with the interactive mm-hmm. uh, CD-ROM and the touch screens yeah. and stuff like that it's all 
you know, most of those things have played out, haven't they? And you could have, you can, they're just normal things that we're used to having around us mm-hmm. now. So, yeah, that that was good. It was interesting as well that um, he just he used a, a, the DX uh, virus here to make the animals poorly, uh, which is the reason why they were let off and tagged around the island. Um, I thought that mm-hmm. was quite good as well because he needed a way to get them out of um, containment, and I thought that was quite clever. Really, it sort of it made it more interesting and allowed the the dinosaurs that were out and about to kind of be more in their natural environment instead of having them confined. If they'd have found them and they were in confined areas and stuff like that, I think it would have made less sense. But the fact that they're able to hunt and interact and stuff like that, I found quite interesting. Yeah, and I think um, I enjoy that. That it, it, he's. I think it goes to the theme of, of both books, really, is that the scientists really don't know what they're doing. And in that part there, it's it's you know something that they can't figure out what's wrong with these animals, so they let them out and, and tag them and bring them back. And then ship yeah. the ones that that make it over to the island, and that's what Crichton is really trying to hammer home: is that science doesn't know what they're doing all the time. Scientists don't know what they're doing all the time, yeah. and just because yeah. you don't understand it and you see something grand and wonderful doesn't mean it's perfect. Yeah, I think one of the bits that I really like that just comes up at the, in this stage um, of the novel here is the fact um, it goes back to what I was saying about Arby being on the network. Um, I really like the fact that when they find the pa- they they go to find the power source um, on the island, and then Arby comes through on the radio, and I love that bit where Thorne's like really cheesed off about the fact that Arby's on the island, mm-hmm. but at the same time he's like he's super, <laughs> super, super grateful because he's able to tell them. That the yeah, he's very helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, what do you think of Arby as a character? I I like him. Um... I like that they they mention again with like the diversity that he's a a person of color, but then it's never brought up again. He's just, you know, just like everyone else as as it should be. Um, and yeah, he's he's very bright, very smart, um, and I, I like him. And I do like the with the, some of the banter that him and, and Kelly have. You can tell that they're both adolescents, you know, as yeah. he's doing, kind of like like Lex from the film, you know, that she can do great things he can do great things with this technology he understands it because he's young but and, you know don't forget that they're adolescents at the core yeah it gives them a, a bit of vulnerability as well doesn't it mm-hmm. you know there's the, the the bit later on there where um basilton gets eaten by the rex and you know it, it really upsets kelly and arby runs mm-hmm. to the toilet and stuff like that it just kind of like it reminds you that actually they're just kids and that would yeah. be pretty that'd be a pretty horrific experience to be honest i mean definitely you know, it would it would be uh, it would be awful so next up we've got thorn he's he's going to find levine um, and we get the the two rex uh, two rexes in the nest there um, I, I like this it's um it's nice to see a male and a female t-rex although correct me if i'm wrong but i'm not sure why we've got a male um on the back of Jurassic Park, because obviously they're all female. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. if that's something to do with the breeding process or, or the problems they were having. Uh, I there's guess, reference uh, to an uh, alpha, isn't there? Yeah, and I, I can't remember what was said in the book compared to the film in the first uh, Jurassic Park. Did they also make reference in the book of, of the changing sex? Uh, yeah, the dimorphism, um, because yeah. they're breeding, aren't they? the raptors mm-hmm. um, at the end there. So, yeah, it's interesting. True, yeah. I, I, I do like this bit, though. I like the fact that 
Levine is, well, I mean, he's just so annoying to Thorne, isn't he? Because Thorne's all about reality and Levine's just, he just goes ahead and just does stuff and puts himself in danger and drags other people into danger. But when he's rescued mm-hmm. or when he's helped by anybody, he basically just mocks them and, and thinks that they're idiots. And uh, like like the bit where we get uh, Thorne and Eddie shooting off, sorry, Thorne and Levine shooting off on the electric bike and the Rex is chasing after them. But mm-hmm. we learn that it actually is just protecting the nest. And um, I like that little bit of dialogue between Thorne and Levine. And Levine's basically saying, you know, what <laughs> what are you doing? Stop the bike. You know, we didn't need to go. <laughs> so that's quite good. Um, yeah, he's sort of feeds kind into of... Um... Yes, uh, he's he's definitely overwhelmed by the, the discovery, the the wonder and the awe. He kind of uh, jumps in feet first without thinking it all the way through. Um, yeah, and, and then um, uh, Thorn is kind of the, the Eddie Carr character from the yeah. m- the film. Yeah. Um, they kind of rolled those two characters into one for the film, Eddie Carr and Thorn. Um, I, I enjoy, the, you know, he's he's aged, seen some things. You know, he's he's an educator. Um, he, he's very practical, uh, yeah, knows what like he's that. doing almost all the time. Yeah. 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 I, I, there's a couple of Jurassic Park three, um, bits early on here that, that, that I think are quite similar. And I wonder if they, they pulled it. I think the bit where they're in the lab, um, and they're talking about the production line with the conveyor belt. Um, I know we don't get a conveyor belt in the movie Jurassic Park three, but the lab scene there, it feels very much they feel like the same places. That's why I, I instantly mm-hmm. imagine that when I'm actually reading that part of the novel. Um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. The fact that Levine had to spend the night in the tree with the Raptors. Um, it's a little bit like when Billy and uh, Amanda and Paul Kirby, they're up in the tree there overnight and the Raptors are, mm-hmm. you know, snapping around the tree and trying to get to them. So there's a couple of bits there that I felt like they, they felt a bit JP three when I was reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, then we, we shoot over to Dodgson, um, Basilton in the cantina. Um, and then we learn of, uh, the fact that Levine's gone to sauna and they, they managed to bribe the, the fishermen to take them out. And mm-hmm. I think it's quite a, an interesting, uh, just gives you another insight into Dodgson. He's just all about the end goal. He, he doesn't really care. You know, the, the guy's saying that the weather's bad. He shouldn't go. And uh, he just doesn't care about that. He's having to put everyone in danger in order to get out there. Yeah. He just um, is all about, like you said earlier, the, the end goal. Um, he's not practical at all. I believe like the, the only piece of equipment they bring is a gas-powered Jeep Wrangler. Um, he, you know, he has no fear. Uh, he's, yeah. he's cocky. He just, you know, I'm just, he thinks he's going to head there in the Island and get everything done in one day. Yeah. Um, and just, I, I think to myself, I own a Jeep Wrangler. Um, yeah, as do you, it's such an impractical vehicle to be picking up dinosaur eggs, yeah. uh, and storing it. <laughs> yeah. If, how many he thought he could carry in there along with, uh, three grown adults is, is comical to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that crossed my mind as well. Cause I'm thinking, well, how, what, you know, is this like the four door, the, sorry, the five door or the two door? I know they reference the canvas <laughs> roof as well. I'm thinking uh-huh. the suspension's yeah. all over the shop, isn't it? It's not, it's not what you'd be, it's not what you'd be taking eggs around, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it, like you say, he's, he's like, yeah, well, I think he says something like, we're, it's like one o'clock and we'll be out of here by five or we'll be out of here in four or five hours or something. Yeah. And you just think, you know, he's so far detached from reality, isn't he? So he's got mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely no idea. Um, and then we cross back to 
uh, Eddie, Thorne, Malcolm, uh, assembling the high hide. So this goes into what you were saying earlier about we get more of a description about how it's constructed and the cage door and the lock. Um, mm -hmm. And I like that little bit about how they should have made it black. Uh, so it sort of, it, it didn't reflect. Yeah. Uh, and they could hide, you know, they hide it with the fronds and the, and the plants, don't they? Mm -hmm. And, and I think if I remember correctly, it doesn't even go as high as it's shown in the film. It's like moderately high, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. more like a, an observation point, isn't it? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, that's a key difference, actually, now you mention it. Because in the movie, it's kind of like a safety place, isn't mm -hmm. it? You know, we go up high yeah, to hide. They're very afraid of the, the animals getting close to them while they're in it. It's kind of... Yeah, like you, like you said, observation deck, not really uh, to get out of the way, like in the film. Yeah, I think Malcolm says put the, put, puts you in a convenient biting position or something like that, doesn't he? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like in the novel here, it's more, it is more, you know, to use as an observation point. Um, then we get a bit, a bit from Ian. He sort of drifts off a bit um, about understanding extinction and trying to prove his theories by observing the animals. Uh, we get this this bit in the book called The Red Queen, um, which is an Alice in Wonderland reference about how, you know, every everyone's trying to evolve and move forward, but they're not actually going anywhere. They're almost like they're on a treadmill, you know. Mm -hmm. they're, uh, they're not... Uh, everything's changing all the time, but nothing's actually moving forward, running to keep still. Mm -hmm. um, and then we get to... This is probably one of my favourite... Uh, bits of the whole novel and it's where Sarah goes to the port and uh, she can't get the helicopter or a plane over to the island and she comes uh -huh. across Dodgson um, I love the way that he sort of behaves towards her when once she he realizes that she's intending to get to the island his whole demeanor changes and uh, mm -hmm. she then becomes suspicious of him I, I don't know what you thought of that bit of the book yeah it really shows you um the character and how to just distrust him a lot. Again, like I said earlier of Mills, um, yeah. it's like that in the film where instant, just turn on a dime, go from loud to, to soft, you know, anger to you know, happiness. Um, and yeah. And, and he, you can see once he sees that she could somehow benefit him to getting what he wants, he, he he's all into, to use her and to bring her aboard and almost, um, fool her in a way to get yeah. there and to get what he wants. Yeah, we get a bit about uh, King, uh, Howard King here. And I don't know, it seemed that Crichton spends quite a lot of time telling us about him and how he was a, a young um, scientist and he had a lot going for him. Then it all went wrong. And then Dodgson lured him into being his assistant and he, he kind of got his career yeah. back. Um, I, I felt like that the book sort of drifted a bit there. I feel like there's a couple of stages in the novel where, like you were saying, it's a bit slower. It's almost mm -hmm. like he felt like he needed to fill bits out, so he got a bit more character develop development than it than it needed. Um, I don't know what you think about that, but I just felt like the king, I, the whole. I like that part, king. but I agree with you that it's slow, and maybe it wasn't necessary. But it does say a lot, I think, again to what Creighton is trying to say for this book. Um, yeah. He's a young scientist, and he kind of runs out of chances, and that's not really what science is. It's about you know chance after chance after chance, uh, making mistakes, learning from your mistakes, ultimately getting to the right answer of things. And I think it really goes to show how corrupt uh, Dodgson and the whole uh, corporate science part is 
you know, that they, okay, send me the next guy. Send me the next young guy. Once you've messed up, you know, two yeah. chances you're out. I, it, I think that it's, I think it was important to Crichton to include that. And yeah. I agree with, with your criticisms that it was a little slow kind of, yeah. you know, let's kind of get to the action here and, and it kind of, you know, slowed it down there. Yeah. But actually, now you've said that, I suppose what Dodgson is doing or did when King's career was going down the hill is he effectively exploited him, didn't he? He saw that mm -hmm. he was vulnerable. He was in a position where he needed to get uh, his career back on track. And um, he's kind of used that opportunity to get somebody on board who sort of can't get out of the situation once he's involved with him. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, yeah, he, sure. like you said, exploits, sees the, the value in something that's been uh, tossed aside by modern science. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what, what Crichton is trying to say is, you know, they're doing it wrong. Them. They're taking brilliant minds and they're pushing them out of the field. And Dodgson yeah. is this no good character here to swoop up and, and kind of exploit them, like you said. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I really love the next bit. We're on the boat um, and Dodgson, um, he's talking to King and um, Sarah's really not sure about the whole situation. It just something just doesn't feel right. I love, I love the fact how Dodgson comes over and he's really pressing her to try and find out uh, who knows she's gone. Uh, where she's come mm -hmm. from he's like finding out whether she ha she's married all of this information mm -hmm. and i don't know about you but i even the first time i read the book i knew something was coming it's written i think it's written to lead you to believe something's coming because his, his yeah. inquiries are so sort of specific as to you know does anybody know you're on this boat um, and then when he mm -hmm. when he kicks her overboard and uh, the whole description of her being caught in the swell of the waves. I think it's so well written. You really, I don't know about you, but I really yes. felt I could feel it. I could feel her being in that water. Yeah. Yeah. The way you said, the way it's written, you can feel how scary and, and you almost get physically tired just reading it. Um, that's, that, I think it would be one of my worst fears, like the, oh, yeah. possibly almost drowning like that. And the way it's written, how she goes under to take her boots off. Yeah. Uh, Cause they're, they're logging her down. Um, and just the, this, the toll that must have taken on, on the body, you know, up and down and eventually getting into the cave and, yeah. and her uh, collapsing from exhaustion. And but that like we spoke earlier, this this shows you the resilience of her and how strong she is as a, as a woman, as a character that she fights through this and survives because other people probably wouldn't have. Yeah. And I, I, I'm sure Dodgson is really thinking that she hasn't made it, to be honest with you. I think he mm -hmm. feels like he's picked his moment really well. Uh, as they're you know because i know when she's in the water there she sees the the cliff wall and then she sees the cave and you, you can just imagine the the chaos of tr being in that situation and also how cold the water would be i mean i know we're in like mm -hmm. south america but even so in stormy weather it's gonna you know she does a good job to stay alive really um, yeah and i think earlier in the book creighton goes out of his way to explain to both Malcolm's party and with Dodson's party about how treacherous the landing would be on the island. And they prefer the helicopter landing and how, yeah. uh, you know, a water landing can only happen under the right conditions. And it's just very bad to, to tr you know, to be in the waters around the island. Yeah, I think as well, it takes us, because um, we're focusing on Sarah's sort of fight to get through the water and get into the cave, it takes us away from Crichton having to explain Dodgson and the boat getting in uh, and docking. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the actual process of getting in through the cave and stuff like that. Because like you say, but they previously mentioned how treacherous it is. 
So it's quite it's quite a good way, really, because it moves your focus over to Sarah. So you kind of later on, like you say, we come to the cave, and when she comes to, or not comes to, but when she sort of gets through, gets through before she blacks out, she she notes that Dodgson's boat's moored up the river from her. So they've actually mm-hmm. made while she's been going through all that, they've made it in and they've already moored up and they're already you know they've already set off, haven't they? Yeah, now that you say it, I, I think I mentioned earlier about in the movies where they quick cut stuff, and this was kind of a brilliant way in the book to not quick cut, but yeah, like you said, not explain. And Dodson is just there, and they're they're ready to be on their way. Yeah, for sure. We we cross back before we get to the cave. We cross back to the valley. We've got Louine and Malcolm. Uh, they're observing the apatosaurs and the parasaurs. Um, and how they work together, you know, their positioning and, and, you know, they each play to each other's strengths. So that's quite interesting because, again, it's another observation. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a concentration of the science. Um, and we also get in this bit where um, Levine drops his energy bar wrapper out of the high hide, um, which is something that, you know, plays a, a big part later on in the story. Yeah, I really like this part. Um, and, and Malcolm says over and over again how he's his real mission there is to sort of like look into what caused the extinction, you know, um, his theories of extinction, which is sort of how the novel starts off with Malcolm. Um, and then here, here's sort of where, where the part when Malcolm is speaking on this and then you see how the animals behave, that to me it's kind of like a Crichton's subtle way of showing you how Malcolm is kind of wrong. Yeah. Because he goes on and on to explain about uh how what creates evolution um is it more the your elements uh the interactions the behavior you have and yep. you know these are animals that are not we're not paired in the same part of the world in the same time when they would have lived you know back in the mesozoic um and here they are using each other for defense and stuff like that and they've already they're already altered they're already not the same animal that Malcolm thinks that he's studying so yeah. so right there it's sort of you know showing you that the, the paradox in his thinking and how it's wrong yeah yeah no you're right I, I, like you said right at the start Crichton really uses Malcolm as a way to uh, express his concerns and his observations of science and you know and nature and you know our involvement in meddling as well uh, it, it mm-hmm. comes through Malcolm a lot doesn't it particularly in the second novel mm-hmm. um, we then cross back over to Dodgson King and Basilton and King is basically asking Dodgson why he did it. You know, he presumably he saw her him push her into the water. Um, yes. But Dodgson's adamant that it's an accident. I can't work out Basilton here. He says, oh, you know, I didn't see it. I can't work out whether he did see it and he's just kind of in denial, trying to sort of remove himself from what happened or whether he actually didn't see it. Um, I'm trying to work him out as a character whether he hmm. is just after the superficial success of being involved in finding these eggs or whether he he's, you know, caught up with somebody in Dodgson that isn't very pleasant and he hasn't quite worked him out yet. Yeah, I can tell you the truth. I hadn't put so much thought into that, but that's interesting. I, I like yeah. that observation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we don't get a lot on Basilton really. He's sort of he's there as a, a third party. I feel like he's kind of placed to get attacked, really, just to kind of yeah, you know, uh, bulk out the Dodgson party really. Instead of it just being the two of them, he's kind of put in there as a as a third party in order to um, you know basically meet his demise uh, later on. So he's an interesting character, but 
which yeah. I don't think we get enough background on him to, to fully appreciate what his role is. I know he's kind of teamed up with Dodgson to try and present Dodgson's finds to the world um, and make it be acceptable. That's the feeling I get, because earlier on, when they're in the cantina, he's saying about how he's going to go to the science magazines and you know present it as a, as a discovery. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he's an interesting character. Uh, I like this bit where we learn that Dodgson's basically mapped the island using satellite images, so he's trying to work mm-hmm. out you know where the nests are. And like you were saying earlier, he, he literally thinks he's going to jump in this Jeep and spend a few hours just yeah. wrangling up these eggs, So, which is... Well, interesting. Uh, we then go over to Yeah, Levine. he is smart. It shows how brilliant he is, you know, that he would think to do that. Um, and, you know, it kind of yeah. it shows, that, you know, his, his demise and, and his weaknesses are in his uh, his brilliance and how much yeah, he Yeah, he's so single-minded as well, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we cross over to Levine, um, and he, he does what he as intended not to do, and he interacts uh, with the parasaurs, uh, which I thought was quite interesting because even, you know, he's in the high hide, he's trying to just observe them, stay out of their way, but curiosity gets the better of him, better of him, and uh, he calls out to them, and they start heading over towards him, and he starts to panic. Um, and I just thought that was that was a really good example of sort of meddling, really. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you can't. There's nothing you can do. You you you're always going to leave a footprint. It doesn't matter what your actions are. You always mm-hmm. it always has a difference. And then that we then get the bit that you were saying about earlier with the problems of evolution. It's called the chapter. And Malcolm goes all over the place and spends quite a long mm-hmm. time, to, you know, telling us all about evolution. Yes. Yeah. No. So he says about like uh, babies mm-hmm. being born with big eyes and things like that. So parents are um, naturally adapted to nurture and care for them. Um, so mm-hmm. they, by looking vulnerable, they're looked after and they're cared for. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and as Malcolm's going yeah, off he... about his hopes of understanding why the dinosaurs became ex- extinct, um, Levine comes over on the radio and says, you know, you need to, to come and see this, uh, which is quite interesting mm-hmm. because I feel like Malcolm doesn't finish his point. Again, it's like Crichton, he's going off on one, talking about evolution and giving us lots of he name drops lots of scientists and lots of mm-hmm. views and explanations of, of evolution over the centuries. And just when we get to the end and Malcolm's about to come to why he thinks we're going to learn about the dinosaurs' extinction, Levine radios through and he's sort of pulled out of that and, and we're back on the present story. Yeah, who knows? Um, maybe Crichton himself didn't want to finish the thought because it's kind of final, you know, and the ambiguity yeah, of it is interesting. Yeah, you make a good point there. Maybe he, he kind of was using it as a way to get all his thoughts out, but he didn't actually have the answer himself either. Yeah. Yeah. So Levine leaves the high high to pursue the parasols down the game trail because uh, he wants to know uh, why they've changed locations. And he's interested as well because they form into a single file, uh, which sort of he's intrigued by and he wants to know what's going on. Um, and then we get mm-hmm. Sarah, uh, back to Sarah, and she's waking up. And I like this where Crichton puts that she sees a, a giant horse. <laughs> I thought that was quite good, mm-hmm. really, because yeah. it shows that she's still a bit delirious. She's not quite, you know, focused in on what's going on. Uh, and then it's the Stegosaurus, um, which yeah. is really cool. I like the fact that he says it's she sort of uses her memory from childhood 
to name him, uh, name it. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really nice. And like you said, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's like kind that of scene, like, isn't it? Yeah, the, uh, the one from Fallen Kingdom. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, she's quite in a state of shock here. Um, and I know like that's the tendency of the brain is to try to uh, understand what's already familiar to it. So yeah. I can understand going to a horse. And that kind of shows how she, you know she really doesn't quite understand what it is that she's going to see. And her brain needs some time to work it out to understand what it is. And like you say, it's something that it's so familiar to her from childhood that, again, on second pass, it's easily understand that that's a stegosaur. I, I, I really like this whole bit, actually, because... We get the the bit with the stegosaurus, and I like how she notices that it it notices her briefly, and then it just sort of carries on about its business. I thought that was quite mm-hmm. good. And then she sets off, um, finds the game trail, uh, and then we get that that bit where the um, the raptors come through, chasing the chasing the other dinosaurs. She finds the tree, jumps up, gets gets out of harm's way, and then she pursues the raptors. Uh, finds the kill site and I really like I really enjoy her observations and I like how Crichton writes the raptors here I like the fact that they're they're vicious they're unorganized and they're scarred mm. and, and battered and bruised um, I think that's a, this is a really cool bit of the the story and I can imagine it cinematically as well I think it would yeah. be like a really tense bit I think if Spielberg or someone got mm-hmm. hold of that I think they, they could do a, you know make that quite a scary situation to be in yeah, they're, they're just, they're painted very dirty. Um, and, and of course, Sarah understands what exactly it is she's looking at, even though she doesn't quite know the animals because of uh, her study in the field of the, the jackals and stuff. Um, uh, but yeah, and again, you could see it. it. It is written cinematic. Like you said, he probably was looking as, as a cinematic piece to maybe be included in a movie. Um, I love, uh, again, every time there's a, a carnivore mentioned in this novel we get it paints painted with smell about how how putrid and sour they smell yeah and that's something that really a good descriptor it really gets my imagination going not only am i painting a picture in my head of what they look like i can also i'm there i'm smelling it and i'm disgusted by these predators yeah that's a really good point actually that it does do that the way that he writes it um and mentions the smell you're absolutely right you you it builds, it makes like a whole, like an immersive picture of what's going on in that moment, doesn't it? And, um, yeah, it's quite a clever way of doing it really. If he, if he introduces that every time there's a carnivore, because you associate that with danger as well in the book. So when you hear that uh, or you read that, um, you know, that something, something's going off for sure, but it's, it's a lovely, Mm. it's a lovely, really well-written piece. I I know you have the, um, Foley society with, uh, the illustrations from Vector that Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's done a really good uh, black and white image of that moment where Sarah's jumped up into the tree. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought she did a really excellent job of painting that picture. Really, so it's, it's, it's what I imagine as soon as I as soon as I read that bit of the book. Um, then we get a, a little chapter called Noise. It's not very long, but it's quite interesting because uh, Thorn and Malcolm are heading off down to get Levine. Or see Levine, mm-hmm. sorry, because he's called him down to say, "Come and come and see what's going on with the parasaurs," and he, Malcolm, hears the noise of an engine, or thinks he hears the noise of an engine, and, and we know that he has. Uh, and then at that mm-hmm. point, um, Arby comes over on the radio and says, uh, "You know, someone else on the island," and of course, it's Sarah. Um, yeah, 
I was quite expecting a, it to, to, to be uh, Dodson in that moment. I had kind of forgotten about Sarah in this while I was reading it. Um, yeah. But yeah, Malcolm is right in the middle of his, like he's given another speech about what he thinks and he just stop, you know, and you think that's part of what's going on. And then he's, he's, I heard an engine like, you know, yeah. he's so in tune. He's actually, you know, being aware of his surroundings while in deep thought and, and uh, exposition. Yeah. I, I was exactly the same as you. I completely, even though we've just read about Sarah, I, I mm-hmm. imagined, it, I think that was intentional. I, I think he wrote that in such a way that, that when Arby comes over on the radio there, we're, we're supposed to sort of put two and two together and say, yeah, that's the, you know, the noise of the vehicle. So for sure. But it's also a clever way of pulling the group apart. It kind of splits, because up until now, everyone's been, uh, you know, Levine's out in the high height, everyone else is in the trailer. So they're all sort mm-hmm. of together. But at this point, it pulls, it sort of stretches it all over because Eddie heads off to find Levine on the electric bike, um, which is cool, by the way. I really like the electric bike. Again, it's another one of these um, futuristic things, but mm-hmm. it plays a really key part later on in the story, um, which is nice. But the fact that Eddie goes after Levine, Thorne and Malcolm go after Sarah, um, the kids are in the trailer, and we've got Dodgson and his group on the island, it kind of splits up the story. Um, yeah, again, with the misdirect, um, you're, you're kind of like, this book is a little bit slower than Jurassic Park, doesn't have as much action up until this point as Jurassic Park, and maybe you're thinking, is this a, a conflict that's going to be set up? And like you said, it's it's just a good way of like pulling the group apart and then telling two separate stories at the same time. We get a bit of a, a, a D to start moment, sort of, here, um, where uh, Eddie finds Levine and he's observing the parasaurs and they're peeing mm-hmm. and pooping everywhere and uh he's trying to make <laughs> sense of it and the compies show up which is a bit of a callback to the first novel uh when harley yeah. um explains about the fact that they you know they they clean that they're, they're kind of like the cleanup crew yeah and, exactly um, yeah and eddie is super nervous and, and and we get this bit where levine sort of leans in to to have a look at what's going on and eddie startles him and uh, and then the compies attack him and bite him i mm-hmm. thought that was quite cool um, nice little sort of nod to the movie, or the movie nodding back to the back to the book. But you know, the compies they haven't really played a big part in this story so far. But I really enjoy them as a species in in, in the franchise in general. Mm-hmm. Oh so yeah, what you thought of this bit? Yeah, I like it. It's it's kind of the audience is in on it. If you've read the first novel, um, yeah. if you've seen the second movie, which I guess you wouldn't have because it wasn't made yet, but. Um, you know, the audience knows the danger that's coming and, and the characters are just like, oh, what, what, what is it, whatever, what are these things? And again, it's, it's almost like an Easter egg um, to, if you've read the, the first novel, knowing what the, what the copies are there to do. Then we get um, Dodgson, Basilton and King. They get to the first uh, nest site. So they get the myosaurs. Um, I quite, I don't know, really. I was in two minds about this this device. It, it, at first, I, I kind of felt like it was a strange way to go about getting hold of the, neck, the eggs. But when I thought mm-hmm. about it, I thought, well, how else, how else could you do it? You've got to find a way of distracting the, you know, the adult, the parent dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of come round to enjoying the, the kind of this high pitched, um, device that sends out this, uh, this sound that put, that puts the animals off. And of course, shortly we're going to find out about mm-hmm. what difference that makes. Uh, to whether or not they can get the eggs. Yeah, but... I like this part. 
um, where they're talking about the the dinosaurs, and he he paints them as how like stupid they are perceived, yeah. uh, you know, to the party. Um, and I'm not sure he sort of like alludes to maybe like the the first film about the the motion. If you if you don't move, it, it can't see you, which although it plays a part, uh, a big part, and coming up in the next couple scenes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that device is weird. I don't. Is it ever named? I don't recall it being named. No. I, but um, no. It's it's crazy. Yeah, and the fact that it's not named is maybe the reason I had a bit of a difficulty sort of getting my head around it at first because I couldn't kind of associate it with anything that I already knew. But I suppose the only thing I can think of, I don't know if you've come across these before, um, you can get like a, a mice deterrent um, device. Oh, yeah. In the, uh-huh. in the UK, you plug it in and it's like a sonic sound. So you press the button and it, mm-hmm. it enables you to hear this sonic sound. And apparently that's like a, a white noise that they can hear and you okay, can't yeah. hear. And I wondered if it was kind of like, I imagined it to be that sort of thing, like a high-pitched noise that humans could just about bear, but it was on a frequency that that, that the dinosaurs in this case couldn't couldn't handle. Yeah, that's, that's what you say that. I was My first reaction was, you know, this is kind of opposite of what we were just speaking about, him being in tune with uh, technology, because I couldn't think of anything to relate yeah. it to. When you say that, that's, that's really good. And then it also it sort of answers a question that I had in my head is, is that how they don't need hearing protection that yeah. it doesn't affect the humans as it was the dinosaur. So, so yeah, I like that. That kind of answers a lot of questions that I, that I guess I had in my my head. I didn't really think of till now. Yeah. We get a nice little name job drop here as well, because uh, they, they know uh, Dodgson notes that Jack Horner um, named Maris or good mother mm-hmm. lizard. And I think that was quite cool because obviously by this time, Jack Horner's advised on the first Jurassic Park movie. So yeah, it's yeah. kind of like, it was a nice little way of sort of, I don't know, bringing him into the story, really. I thought that was quite cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get a little bit at the high hide. Um, Eddie's patching up Levine after the compies, uh, compies bit him. Um, and then we go back to the trailer, and we spoke about this earlier. We get that little bit of a scene here where um, Kelly is alone with Sarah, and she's kind of trying to build her up. Kelly's uh, upset because she's been told that she, you know, she's not going to be any good at maths. Uh, by her mm-hmm. mother and by her teachers and uh, it, it's nice to hear Sarah you know I like the fact that she says you know what do you want to do when you grow up and she's, she says like you know I don't know and uh, she says that's a great answer I think that's it's good because I think I don't know about you but I you know it, you don't really know what you know everyone has sort of ideals about certain things they'd like to do but you don't really know what you want to do when you grow up I don't think I think sometimes you're made to believe you should know um, mm-hmm. but, but I think it's, it's kind of a good way of putting, putting that in there. Yeah. I think when I was reading that part, I thought of the John Lennon song, the working class hero sort of, you know, it has a lyric that's similar to that. Um, and, and I, I think about that a lot about, again, with the, so clearly they're adolescent and this sort of ties into the other theme. I think that Crichton's trying to get across is that people don't really know as much as they think they know. Yeah. And, um, you know, to know at a young age, that's, that's uh, quite good advice to know, you know, sometimes you don't know what you want to do until you're in your thirties is I believe what he said in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. and again, you know, I think that's just a, a reoccurring theme that, that Crichton keeps hammering here. Kelly and, uh, and Sarah hear the, the men in the next trailer talking and they go in and, and they learn that they have found Dodgson basically, and that they're on the Island. And they also reference that it's where they'd found Levine earlier on in the, in the book, uh, which is the Rex Nest. So they jump uh, in the electric mm-hmm. car 
uh, and set off to go and find them, Sarah, uh, Malcolm and Thorne, and leave the kids in the trailer uh, to observe on the monitors. So I thought mm-hmm. that was quite good. Again, you know, splits the party and they've left the kids there uh, so they can observe what's going on. Um, helps the story sort of move along. And then we get, yeah. I think this is one of my, you know, after I, I didn't really enjoy the way that it was written the first time, but after coming back to the novel this time, I really enjoyed the nest scene. Um, mm-hmm. th- this bit, I think it's, I think it's well written and you can feel how tense, you know, you've got Dodgson who's, a little bit nervous about it because he knows it's a Rex, but he's still, mm-hmm. even though, I mean, if you actually just imagine it for a second, it makes me think back to the Explorer scene in the movie Jurassic Park. You've got the breakout Rex there. Mm-hmm. And I just think, I remember the first time I watched that and you see the Rex, and the size of it against those cars. And that would be, you know, we're watching that in a cinema, but if you're actually in that environment, that would be horrifically scary. I don't know what you think yeah but, i mean <laughs> if you just try no, to yeah that says a lot about dodson and they act on that that false information which of course malcolm knows isn't true about the yeah. uh, site uh, based on movement yeah and you can really see that like you said dodson does not have the fear um until um uh, basil it's basilton that gets uh, attacked first right yeah um and then they talks about like all of a sudden he's, he starts to sweat um, and that's when the fear sets in, when he's he's starting to notice that things are going to go wrong. He hadn't anticipated anything going wrong. Yeah. And, you know, he makes some some a lot of mistakes, uh, you know, being underprepared. And you see, uh, you know, how being so underprepared, so ill-informed, it really leads to a lot of uh, doom here for the Dodson party. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, they they break the the net the leg of the baby rex mm-hmm. as well in this moment he steps back and and stands on the on the rap, on the, uh, the on the baby rex so that's a bit of a sort yeah, of yeah that's a deleted link. scene from the from the film yeah it is yeah you're right i think uh, is uh, what's his name who's the ludlow ludlow uh, yeah yeah he in the deleted scene he's drunk and steps on the um the baby's leg and the nest yeah. and taking it yeah, so I mean they've directly pulled that there, but of course that plays into the into the story a bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, I just when I read it, I, I really enjoyed the bit where the um, cord, the battery pack, comes becomes unplugged mm-hmm. from the sound device, and he he puts the dodge and just freezes, like you say, it's from that misinformation about if you if you're still Rex can't see you, but I could just. I imagine that scene cinematically again. You've got the noise, the wrecks. They're all flustered. They're standing back. They don't mm-hmm. know whether to advance or or what to do. And then the battery pack becomes disconnected, and you could just feel, or I just felt the the fear drop into that situation. Yeah. Because up until that point, you're thinking, yeah, they're going to get away with this because it's working. It's acting as a deterrent. Mm-hmm. And then of course it comes unplugged, and you're thinking, oh dear. And I like Arby and Kelly are in the trailer, and they're like, "Why don't? Why is he not just? Why don't you just plug it back yeah. in?" But you know that actually. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of the Eddie Carr scene from the film, where oh, right. you know okay. that's what Crichton's trying to say. Everything works in, until it doesn't. You know, when he gets the the Lindstrat rifle caught in the uh, netting. Yes. Um, it sort of reminds me of that. With that, that's that's scary when you you know you're making a mistake that the T Rex is there, and like you, I've got this covered. I have this technology until it doesn't work, and you know, and you have to think on your feet and neither characters can and and, and, and it turns out bad for both of them. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think actually, uh, just thinking about that, it's a Lindstrat rifle, isn't it? Um, and mm-hmm. so it's the same thing in the novel. So that was quite cool, a little, little takeaway um, from the book. We then get uh, we then get Malcolm saying that, that Dodgen is misinformed um, about the fact that, you know, they can't move. Uh, Rex can't see you if you don't move. Uh, Basilton gets basically chomped on gets eaten mm-hmm. and we get Kelly and Arby seeing that happen. Um, again, going back to the Furley Society edition, we get a great picture of them yeah. kind of wincing away from the screen as the, his arm is hanging out of the Rex's I think mouth. that might be my favorite. And that was vividly in my head when I was reading this passage. Yeah. Um, that, that's great. But um, yeah. again, like you said, and it's, it's written with such detail on how the, the arm just goes limp and hangs out of the, the mouth of the, the T-Rex. It's just, that's terrifying and you know it's sort of again with the fallen kingdom references that's that's like um wheatley has that with the indoraptor where the, the yeah. arm is just ripped off right away and goes limp yeah that's true yeah that's that's a great scene actually that scene in fallen kingdom i think you can definitely mm-hmm. sort of imagine that in that situation can't you oh yeah and it's that's terrifying and to know being in that character's position, know that the end is near and to see what was once a part of you being devoured in front of you before you take your last breath is, is dark yeah. and scary. And <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, Dodgson legs it, uh, manages to get back to the Jeep where King's just kind of like loading up the other egg that he's got. He's like, you know, where's Bezelton? Mm-hmm. And he's like, he didn't make it. Um, we get yeah. a reference even. I think he says he writes something like King's uh, sobbing um, in the car. I mean, it must be pretty mm-hmm. horrifically traumatic. He's seen Dodgson kill Sarah on the boat. Then he's uh, seen these dinosaurs for the first time. Then he learns that Basilt- Basilton's not made it. You know, I mean, it's, he's having a pretty horrific time on this island. Um, yes. And definitely. I like this little Jeep scene. We've got, it's a bit reminiscent to when the Rex is chasing the Jeep in the, in the movie Jurassic Park. Um, mm-hmm. But I like how the Rex bursts out in front of them. So Dodgson sticks it into reverse. And he's reversing back mm-hmm. down, and then the, the other X comes from the other direction. I just think cinematically, uh, possibly difficult at the time, but these days with CGI, that could look that could be a really good scene. Yeah, kind of in my mind when I was reading it, I kind of went for a frame of reference to the the Jeep commercial. I don't know if you've seen with Jeff Goldblum from a couple of years ago. Yes, there's yeah uh, where the T Rex is chasing him like that, and I, and I, that's my favorite part when he whips it into reverse. Yeah. And then there's the the T Rexes have actually split up and cornered them in the front and the back is just really yeah. cool to see that they really are a pair that they they're of one mind and they're thinking alike you know trying to get their eggs back. Yeah, yeah, that's that that is it does now you mention that I can really I can really see that the way that 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 commercial mm-hmm. is shot you could imagine that in this situation mm-hmm. couldn't you for sure? Um, yeah. We move to the next chapter, which is decision. And there's a bit I love in this uh, this chapter. It's just a little bit, but it, we learn that um, Dr. Grant, uh, Malcolm is saying, has proposed that the Rex could be confused by dri- a driving rainstorm. Di- Crichton directly trying to explain the fact that in the first movie, we're led to believe that the Rex can't see you if you don't move. Mm-hmm. And you've got Rex... Uh, heading up towards Grant and Lex in the movie there when they're crouched up against the Explorer. It's absolutely chucking it down with rain. And in Mm -hmm. the novel here, he's explaining that Grant believes that's the reason why um, the Rex didn't attack you. 
didn't attack them. And then Levine says, actually, yeah. it's because he'd already eaten, which, of course, is Gennaro. No, yeah, I hadn't thought of that now that you mention it. Yeah, that's another one of those, uh, you know, almost like he's, he feels ownership still over the, the property. Um, there's just a couple of things, and I can't think of the others, but I remember reading at the time thinking he's mentioned in the first film here and sort of explaining it in a way that satisfies him as an author. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I like, it's a good pickup. I didn't quite catch that. That's nice. Yeah, enjoy, I enjoyed that bit. Um, and then we get uh, we get uh, Malcolm, Thorne, and Sarah. They're at the nest, and they're all a bit nervous, but Sarah's the one that goes in first. I, I quite like that again. You know, all power to Sarah. She's she's not. Yeah, she, she's the first one to grab the rifle, and she says something about to yeah. Eddie that he doesn't have to come if he doesn't want to. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, and they see there's a reference to seeing Basilton's leg um, all bloodied up. I thought that was quite nice. Mm-hmm. Well, not nice, but I thought it was quite <laughs> nicely written because it it just makes the the area feel gross. A bit like what we were saying about the smells mm-hmm. earlier. You know, the, his bloodied leg. We've had his arm hanging out of the mouth. So you just get the impression it wasn't even a nice kill. It kind of makes me think of Eddie Carr in the movie there where he gets thrown up in the air and yeah. caught between the two wrecks and ripped apart. And I just it think- really sets the scene for these characters that they know exactly what it is they're walking into, not that yeah. you know they've just heard a sound and they're going to check it out. They know what happened. There's evidence and the stakes yeah. are that much higher. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, uh, Eddie says about the, the little wrecks being injured and Sarah says you know you've got to shoot it and then they leave and I thought that was quite interesting because um it's kind of what we get in the movie where they bring the you know it's the reason for bringing the baby back to the trailer uh you don't think Mm -hmm. I didn't think about it at the time I just presumed that that's uh you know they they shot the the Rex but then obviously read on and, and learn that that wasn't the case and then we get a funny little um chapter Gambler's Ruin uh, which is basically Malcolm yeah. saying that, you know, at, at the end of the day, the gambler will always lose ultimately, even though it should be 50 um, 50. I like the reference to things happening in threes, and when things start to go wrong, they tend to mm-hmm. go wrong one thing after the other. You know, the trends and, and things, and it's kind of uh, a lot of things that Malcolm said in the, in the first film and the first novel, uh, could have treated the character. Then we get to, we go back to Howard King. Um, he wakes up. He's in the Jeep. Um, um, I like how Crichton writes this bit. I, I can I can feel his pain and feel how uncomfortable he is, uh, slumped over. He can't see Dodgson. Um, and he's all a bit all over the place. Um, and then, like I said mm-hmm. right early on in this chat, he hears the electrical buzzing, um, which mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I, I instantly put two and two together and, and thought that was going to be the car. And I like the fact that he goes from feeling quite desperate about the situation he finds himself in to being comforted yeah. by the fact that there's other people on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives him I hope. And he, yeah, he kind of, he sees Dodson, sort of presumes that he's dead and just kind of is like, I've had enough of this and I just I want to be back on that boat and get out of this place. And I like, um, um, you know, like, I, th- I think <laughs> if I can say this, Creighton is kind of like, a little bit nerdy, you know, but he's really done his, his homework and, and I, uh, you know, the thought of to use the front wheel drive on the, on the Wrangler to get it off of, uh, off the tree and off of the, uh, with the rear wheel spinning, yeah, nice. um, it shows that he really has a grasp and understanding of, of mechanics and, and a way to, to write it. That's true to, to true physics. I enjoyed that. Yeah. It's interesting that you picked out that detail actually, because I think that's what he does a lot. He finds the detail and, 
whether mm-hmm. you're into engineering or you went you're into mechanics or science or any of these different that he kind of connects with you time and time you know with with the reader time and time again by concentrating mm-hmm. on the detail and i think it makes it more a more believable story as well you know i think a lot of movies for example i know they don't have the same time to go into the detail as much but they'll just do something and when you think about it in hindsight you think yeah but that's not actually practical or that couldn't have happened in that mm-hmm. situation yeah but the way Crichton writes it, it's like he's really thinking about right. This 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 jeep is hanging off the side here. How does it actually, really, in reality, get out of this situation? Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, he definitely he does that a lot. Actually, he he, he spends he spends time uh, uh, trying to trying to find out. So bad news is the next chapter. Um, RB radios the explorer uh, gets in touch with Malcolm to say you, you know you got to get back to the trailer. And they're like, you know, why? Mm-hmm. Eddie's brought the, the baby back. So Levine's still out on the island, but radios to say how unhappy he is about the fact that they've, they've mm-hmm. taken this baby Rex back. They get back to the trailer, and then we get a bit of... This This is quite similar to the movie. I don't know what you think, because they're talking about the amount of morphine um, that Eddie's given mm-hmm. the Rex. It's kind of a, a model of when Malcolm and Sarah are talking about the amount of morphine they tranked the Rex with when uh-huh. the vent, uh, venture hits the dock, plus the trailer scene with the chewing gum um, to make the mold so it breaks Yeah, a lot of Sarah's dialogue is taken almost word for word here and put in the film. Um, they do that at another point, or he does that at another point with Sarah's dialogue. Um, but yeah, again, the practicality in this scene where they all have to come together with this engineering challenge to uh, make a, a cast that would fall off and it really expands on because in the movie it's really watered down. It's like a, a few sentences between uh, Nick and Sarah, and they, yeah. he really puts a lot of thought into it. You know, talking about the resin and stuff, and and the way that the the bone and the cartilage uh, of the animal isn't fully formed, and explaining what they want to do, and the uh, resin and the aluminum foil um, seams and stuff, and practically how how they would engineer that. So yeah. yeah, he puts a lot of thought into everything that he does. Yeah, yeah, and interesting that he uses Arby to come up with it. I quite like that as well because. It's kind of like a fresh pair of eyes. You know, the adults are all sort mm-hmm. of coming up with these more technical ways of doing it, using the resin or trying to brace it with this, that and the other. And it comes down to, you know, effectively a kid saying, use chewing gum. And it sounds mm-hmm. like a simple idea, but actually it's the only thing that could work in the situation that they find themselves in. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was quite cool. We get another lovely little nod to the first uh, movie and book, actually, because we learn... I think it's Kelly asks Sarah, you know, how she knows all about um, animal autonomy and stuff like that. And, and mm-hmm. she, she says that her dad was a vet at San Diego Zoo. I love that. Yeah. So, and you know, and Malcolm, Malcolm kind of calls out. Yeah, <laughs> she yeah. was. Yeah. Yeah. But again, it's just another way of pulling. He's kind of Crichton was in a strange position writing this sequel because he was having to imagine he was effectively writing a sequel for two versions of the same story yeah which is quite interesting really because he had to you know it's like malcolm is led to we're led to believe that malcolm's died in the first novel then he's back but in the movie he's not Mm -hmm. dead so he's back so it's quite interesting really Mm -hmm. it must have been a bit challenging because he he had to bring the two stories together to make sense uh, in the sequel. Here. Yeah, I could imagine that it would be difficult and you would think there would be a lot of people with the success of the first film 
that just uh, a couple years later would be looking for a sequel. So he has to have that on his mind that people are going to have maybe seen the movie and then go right into this story, maybe without seeing or reading his uh, original novel. So yeah, yeah. a little bit of a, a tightrope and I, I like it. Yeah, definitely. So that's the middle third of this book. We hit the fifth configuration. We get the chapter baby, which we've just spoken about. Do you think any parts of this novel, uh, would be could be pulled into Dominion, um, and if so, which, which bits do you think they might be able to use? Um, probably maybe like the Malcolm speeches about um, animal behavior and evolution and how things take uh, place, because I would imagine that would be a big theme of, of Dominion, would be the way the animals work um, on the mainland and stuff like that. Maybe you could intertwine something uh, of like a, a codependency between dinosaurs and existing animals, you know, that already lived in the wild in North America or wherever they're loose now around the world. So that, that would be something that would be quite interesting. Um, to, to, I hope they go more into the behavior and, and the science and, and theories and stuff like they did sort of in the first film in this yeah. uh, newest entry in Dominion. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, we shall see. Not far now. So uh, it's, it all will be revealed soon. So thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, Dave, I really, oh, really appreciate a pleasure. Thank you. taking the time to talk to me again. Uh, coming back onto the book club um, for for the second for the second season. Where can people find you online? Um, mainly on um, Instagram under Jurassic Dave ninety three. I'm also on Twitter Jurassic Dave ninety three, and I have a, a handful of older videos on YouTube. Just search Jurassic Dave ninety three, and uh, I'll talk to anybody about anything. Just shoot me a, a private message or a tweet or something, and we'll connect. Fantastic. Brilliant. Uh, once again, thank you very much. Thank you. you man we are i mean it's it's i mean we're dating the recording of our recording together but it's happy laura dern day and happy dominion trailer day yeah absolutely how are you feeling about seeing that uh, i mean what a good way to kick off 2022 i know that in the past we've gotten trailers for you know the respective world movies usually the fall before or like going into winter. So it's actually kind of nice to sort of kick off. Like to me, it feels like now 2022 is finally starting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It'd be interesting to see actually on the subject of the Lost World novel, which is what we're covering now in the book club, um, how much, if anything, they take from this novel and put into the new, the new movie. Have you got any thoughts about that? Well, I, yeah, I, I have, well, I have many thoughts, but in specific relation to some of our chapters and just uh, an earlier off pod conversation where Westworld has had to create a wealth of material from a small source. I feel like the Jurassic Park franchise has barely mined and I'm holding this up. I, I don't know why I'm holding it up for the <laughs> listeners, but I feel like, the 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 lost world novel has barely been mined it is so rich 
And I'm excited we and I'm excited that and just to let listeners know, I was supposed to be on the earlier episode. You know, um, I'm glad to be here for this because it's probably there's a line in this in in the section that we're going to the sections we're going to be talking about that might be my favorite piece of Michael Crichton, Michael Crichton writing ever, which is um, it wasn't a horse. <laughs> but when Sarah Harding gets woken up. It's like because Michael Crichton and in the Lost World and and I want to hear your thoughts on this, like the Lost World is such a peculiar novel because it is Crichton writing a sequel for the first time. It, and like it is so just a, a grab bag of like things that he's interested in. And it's way less structured in a sense than the original Jurassic Park novel. So it's like, let me talk about this thing for a little bit. Let me talk about this thing for a little bit. But then there's like these moments of humor. It's just like drunk Ian Malcolm the whole time, basically. Like, yeah, he's he's quite high a lot of the time. Yeah. Throughout this entire book, really, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, Truly. Yeah. He probably wakes up when he gets back to the mainland after it's all happened and can't can't quite remember what, you know, <laughs> what exactly is going well, on. Well, yeah, I think uh, uh, Adventure Collectibles, he'll he like wasn't he the one who found original like drafts or like earlier versions of the Lost World novel where Henry Wu had a secret brother and all that stuff? Yeah. Is it Elliot Wu? I, I yes. Think. Elliot yeah. Wu. And it's going to end a different way, I think. Yeah. Well, then it just makes me think like, what if Malcolm wakes up and it was all a dream and it's actually the end of Jurassic Park. So he did live, but he dreamed a whole sequel. You know, I don't know. It's silly, but. There's the, yeah, I mean, it's interesting you with what you're saying as well about how differently it's written to Jurassic Park, because um, obviously he, the, the film had been made. So he had that very much in his mind. So, he, you know, whereas when he wrote Jurassic Park, it was just like it was his vision. He, no, nothing had been put on the screen. There was no sort of preconception of how the dinosaurs looked or behaved or, or anything like that. So when he's set out to, to write The Lost World, he, he already had all those things in his mind. There's a there's a bit in this part of the novel where he's um talking about how um i think basilton um i think it's basilton references how grant um thought that the t-rex couldn't see vision uh, you know if you, if you stay still he could yeah. see you and then he was putting it down to like maybe if it was torrential rain it confused his senses or something like that so he was trying to make the film version of the first book fit into the the lost world novel yes um, so it, it definitely comes at it from a from a different different point of view doesn't it different angle well and um, i wonder did you watch the movie or read the novel first that's a good question i believe and i think i mentioned this in the when we talked about jurassic park together last year i actually i believe i read the lost world novel before the jurassic park novel so yeah, same i so, with me. so it was oh yeah that's right so it was like I think it was, yeah, this order, Jurassic Park movie, Lost World novel. Yeah, because, well, no, because I definitely read Lost World the same year as the movie. I have very distinct memories of like, uh, and I uh, because my original copy of the Lost World novel, my dad crossed out all the swear words because <laughs> I was young. So, but yeah, that's a good question. I actually, I don't, I, I believe it goes Jurassic Park book. Lost World novel, Jurassic Park book, and then Lost World movie. But I'm not 100% okay, sure. Okay, so the movie came up last last of all. Yeah, I think so. I think so. That that feels correct to me. 
I, I really love my original Lost World novel because it I carried that everywhere. Like it has grit from the blacktop that I would like because I used to just like read during recess by myself. Like there'd be this yeah. little kid sitting out on the out on the playground just reading Lost like this huge, huge book. Like Lost World yeah. was probably my first big boy book. You know what I mean? Like I went yeah, from like yeah. goosebumps and animorphs and stuff to be like all, and it was the hardcover copy of Lost World. So how was, did you find like the violence then with say Basilton's death and stuff like that? I mean that stuff just captivated. Like on on Sea Jurassic right when that podcast first launched, I had a bunch of really funny friends and comedians and people read my childhood fan fiction. And you could really, just because of how absurd it is, so having, like, these really great people, like, bring that absurdity to life, where, like, a lot yeah. of that chat was, like, is was Child Stephen okay? Like, there's a lot of violence in this. And it's, like, well, but when you're a kid, you're just, you have your toys, you know, you got all the Kenner toys and everything, and you're just bashing them around and, and then reading the book, of course. Like, that, yeah. so much of, of the Lost World novel, I think that is... I mean, I think all the chatty, like, stuff about extinction and everything is really great. And rereading the book as an adult, I really, to me, what makes the Lost World novel great is the relationship between Malcolm and Levine. Like, I feel like that's what I, to me, that's what really sticks out about the novel. Um, but I also think Michael Crichton was just so good. Like, um, like you know, the high hide sequence and... You know, and and Sarah Harding getting like even pushed off the boat, like that stuff, like is still some of the most evocative, like writing of Michael Crichton's career, and I think also is some of the coolest Jurassic stuff we have like yet to yeah, see. The, the the sound blasters, you know, all yeah. that stuff, like ugh. yeah, yeah, it's, he he really uh, expands the world, doesn't he? And actually. Although you could say that all of the movies that we've had, the five we've had and the one that's coming up have pulled lots of things out of the novels, there's actually, like you were saying at the start of this conversation, there's still a lot in The Lost World that's not really been utilised. Well, and so I'm curious, and yeah, we don't have to go too into speculation because that could be its own thing, but like, I, even rereading it this time, I'm like, I mean, I'm sure they're going to pull some stuff because Dotson's returning. Like, I'm sure they're going to find ways to utilise some of that stuff, whether it's dialogue or character relationships, because I think I was mentioning and I, I don't know when you would want to go into this or if you have a, you know, a path for this. But to me, like Fallen Kingdom, the thing to me that was very clearly taken from the novel was the relationship between Franklin and Zia. They had a very sibling, like close friendship, outcasty friendship kind of relationship that I think like. Because Zia is like the tough as nails, no nonsense, big heart. Um, and Franklin's like the dork. And, you know, you could totally, yeah, you could totally see Zia saying to Franklin, like, Franklin is a brainer, you know, like you could totally, like yeah. <laughs> their dynamic, I feel like, I think they took some of that for for Fong, for Fong Kingdom. And I'm curious uh, if they extrapolate any more of that, you know. Um, but yeah, I, it's like that bit where Franklin um, does he, he stabs the guard with the uh, needle, doesn't he? Yeah, and he is like you know <laughs> cheering him on his cheeks. Almost. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Do you know when you messaged that earlier? I hadn't even occurred to me, but you're right. I mean, you can really see how the writers took the inspiration from that, um, from the Lost World, and sort of put that into Fallen Kingdom for sure. Yeah, because Kelly in the the Lost World movie kind of 
isn't really uh, Kelly or Arby from the Lost World book at all because she she has the added dynamic of being Malcolm's daughter. So there really isn't anything from the Lost World novel there. Penny, yeah, I think you're right about that. And although she she has an impact in the film uh, when she takes out the raptor, um, but the kids in the novel have much more of a sort of an integral role, particularly like Arby watching over the cameras and he's kind of giving the, the people on the ground a heads up about what's coming, you know, when the Rex comes through the lavatory or yeah. um, sections like that. It's, he's, they're more integral to the to the story. And also, I think they make the um, the deaths in the novel um, feel worse because you're seeing them through the eyes of children you oh, know, when yeah, they're on the right. monitor and they see Bezelton's um, gets taken out by the Rex and the, you've got his arm hanging out and they're looking away and you know well and also pretty um, grim stuff it, well and with the violence too or no not particularly with the violence but the thing that really stuck out to me this time and give a shout out to James from Jurassic Unicast because I listened to my very first audiobook, which was The Lost World. So again, Lost World being another first for me, um, uh, listening to to his reading of it. And like to me, what really st- and another element of The Lost World that I think hasn't really been utilized at all is those characters of, of um, it's uh, Howard King. It, like those dynamics are like so interesting because like the hunters in the Lost World movie and I and I don't mean to jump back and forth and comparing and stuff but like just trying to think about like what are the what are the elements of Lost World that are like fascinating and it's just this idea of like this guy being like a handsome dude but he's like a fa- like I had like a moment today where Howard where Dotson is like thirty five you know you got a kid and I'm like oh my god I'm turning thirty five this year. Like, I'm as old as Howard King is. Like, that was... I had to, like, sit down for a second. Like, and that... (laughs) You know, because... Take a breath. Yeah, well, because... And I think probably... And I'm curious what your thought about this, just going across... You know, speaking more generally to the Lost... To Jurassic Park and the Lost World novels, the thing that doesn't really come across in the movies as much is the sort of corporate espionage-ness and the sort of corporate politics and all that kind of grimy stuff. And, like... Again, getting like Howard King being this like failed rock star that now has to like dig in the dirt with Dotson, like that stuff's so cool and interesting. And like, you know, the movies, you know, the movies don't really weren't really interested in that. You know, Spielberg was like, here's Hunters and the Gathers, you know. Um, yeah, I think Crichton goes out of his way to kind of set Dodgson up to be as bad as he can possibly be as well, doesn't he? <laughs> you know, his actions, his actual actions during the story are awful, but like giving you the background with King and how he kind of manipulated it, him into working for yeah. him and how he's he's using Basilton's sort of um, scientific um, knowledge and presence in the community and stuff like that to his advantage. He basically just takes everything everybody's got for his own benefit, doesn't he? Even like, even on, I love that bit in the, in this part of the novel where um, Sarah bumps into him on the dock and gets the ride on the boat in the first instance. Yeah. And he's like asking her, is she married? You know, who knows she's there? Um, all of that. And you can just, you know, even the first time I read it, I didn't know necessarily he was going to push her overboard, but I just, you could just tell he was working on something well, straight away. Well, Howard knew that's why he felt uncomfortable. You know, because he he like could see the yes he could see the psychopath working. Penny, I'm doing a podcast yeah. right now. Please. Sorry, that's my cat. <laughs> um, 
and the thing that also stuck out to me this time reading this part of the novel is that Dotson is almost like this sort of, you know, he, he he's almost because because John Hammond had his crew, you know, he had Ray, you know, he had, um, Ray Arnold, he had Wu, he had Muldoon. And it's almost like Dotson in this novel has his own sort of like twisted versions of those characters, you know. Like, like these people that work for this big figure and having to sort of um, like being in that web, basically, of manipulation as you're, you know, that kind of thing. And so that to me is like, oh, it's like it's haunting because it is, you know. The, the, you know, a big part of the Jurassic franchise is, you know, ooh, who's the monster, the dinosaurs or man, you know, like, and, and I feel like I, in a way, um, I wonder, too, if Mills in Fallen Kingdom also, you know, was yeah, a, was a little bit of sad. nod to that. You know, I, I called him like when the movie came out, I, I called him the um, like the Ted Bundy effect because he's like. You know, that scene where he's with Macy and he's like, uh, shut up, you know, and then it like he had to like, like um, pull himself back. Yeah, yeah, it's like you could see there's like the sociopath having again, like in dots in the novel where it's like the moment he realizes he can get something from Sarah Harding. He's like, ding, you know, like smile yeah. on his yeah, face, yeah. like that whole th- like yeah. it's, ugh, it's 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 totally like, changes his persona, doesn't he, to suit the environment and, you know, yes, basically manipulate the people around him. Yeah. That's... Talking about Sarah, how did you find her um, novel version compared to her version in the movie? I mean, it's interesting because I feel like Julianne Moore is incredible. And I feel like the more I watch the Lost World movie, the more I wish they had done more with her in the movie. Like, I wonder if, you know, with Spielberg kind of switching the last act and stuff. I mean, obviously she's very involved, but it's... There's just some really great stuff with Sarah Harding in this that I really like. Um, but I wonder I wonder if Spielberg didn't want... Because to me, my thing with Michael Crichton is that, like, everybody has to be hot and brilliant, you know? Like, yeah. and young, you know? Like, everyone... Like, in Spielberg... Or, in, sorry, not in Spielberg's mind. In Michael Crichton's mind, everyone is, like, just, like, the peak smart human. You know, because he was... A, you know, he was a good looking and brilliant guy. So it's almost like every character had to be that, you know, in order to be like good. So in a way, like in a way, like Sarah Harding is almost like the most idealized form of that, even more than Dr. Sattler. I almost feel like Dr. Sattler was like more of a wild card, you know, I don't know. I, but to me, so to Going me, to what you say there actually, um, they, they they you're right. They they all all of the characters apart from the kids have a profession, yeah, or a career, don't they? They're not just sort of anybody. They they all have a you know they've all got a a, a solid background or a solid foundation. Yeah, even the kids actually thinking about it, they're like you know Arby's very techy. You know they've all got different attributes, haven't they? Yeah. Well, and 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 again, that's just to speak to Crichton's interest. You know he was in medical school writing dime store detective novels. And and it's ironic because his distrust of science and scientists created a whole generation of science scientists, you know? Oh, yeah. Because so he was so into the details, you know? And so it's like, weirdly, his dissatisfaction with all of that community, he almost like was like, well, I'm going to do it right. And he didn't always do it right. But like, if you read Terminal Man, 
it's just about how much he hated medical school, you know, like it's, you know, it's yeah. just kind of like, um, I was very lucky to meet the man, um, in 2002, uh, when Prey came out, there was like a dinner at the uh, Los Angeles public library. You met Brighton. Yes, I did get to meet him. I was, I was 16 and yeah, it was like a dinner where it was, I feel like they do, well, they don't do these now, but there was like a period where it was almost like, you know, there's a talk and then you could like maybe get a book signed and do that. Or you could, but this one had like an either, um, you know, my dad has always been such a big, you know, really encouraged me to read as a kid. And so it was like, uh, you know, see a talk. So I got to see Michael Crichton speak for like an hour and then we went to like a dinner. So it was like a hundred people all having dinner at the public library. And then at some point in the dinner, it was like, well, you can go up and say hi to him. So I like brought my copy of Prey. I'm like 16 and like, you know, um, and I, I only <laughs> asked one question and it was, uh, why did you decide to write Prey from a first person perspective? Because obviously all of his novels are third person. So. And he just said he wanted to try something different. <laughs> it wasn't very satisfying, yeah. but I mean, still, I I feel very lucky that I got to meet him. Uh, oh, it's you know. absolutely amazing! Did, but, did you get him to sign your book? Yeah, he he signed it. I'll send you a picture of it, signed copy. Because oh, I don't, I, you know, I just moved, so I don't know where it is. But um, no, absolutely. But um, you know, it's it, reading the Lost World it, again. Sometimes with that lens too, it's like you can see the things he's preoccupied by, like extinction, and just like yeah. Yeah. You know, and and I wonder to the point of uh, questions uh, human behavior a lot as well, doesn't he? Yeah. You know, and the reasons why we do things or think things. Yeah. And it's almost like dinosaurs are almost like they're like a symptom for a larger problem that he was interested in. Because, again, it's like, how do you create a sequel? You know, it's like the pressure's on sort of in a way. And I th- I think that's why I was saying, like, right before we recorded the Lost World is the Force Awakens to Jurassic Park's original trilogy because it's like we're it's almost halfway through the book where you get to the island. Yeah, you know, it's such a, it's like, uh, you know, by the third configuration, you know, you're so deep in, and it, it's it's not that he wasn't like it's not that he wasn't like interested in the dinosaurs. Cause I think, you know, there's so much good stuff with like dinosaur behavior and, you know, all the things about socializing. They're kind of stuff. the tool, aren't they? They're the tool to carry the human story through. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they sort of add the, the, the real time jeopardy, I suppose. Don't they? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. When Levine calls the parasaurs, like that's the stuff. Yeah. And, and the little <laughs> detail about Levine, um, because he's like a spoiled rich kid, uh, him throwing away the like rapper. It's so, it's so just like telling because, but it's not even just that little detail. It's that he, he, um, RB grabs, um, a piece of the chocolate or the protein bar or whatever. And you see RB fold it neatly and put it away. So it's like, not even just that Levine is doing that, but like you see this kid witnessing that and being like, or, I mean, it's not even that uh, Crichton shows his reaction, but it's just by showing the action. So it's like, ugh, like those are those little details that make me love Crichton's writing. Yeah, absolutely. And also you've got, you know, Levine, like I say, he's, he's just this spoiled kid and he's really into his science and he thinks he knows everything about everything. And he's so preoccupied with 
taking all the knowledge on and, and telling everybody how how to behave and <laughs> telling everybody what's going on that he's he kind of he just so it's such a slack thing to do to throw that wrapper away so oblivious and he you know that there's so much talk about not changing the environment and all that sort of stuff and then he just does that throwaway thing um, well, that puts them in so much jeopardy in the third uh, third part of the novel well and, um, and, and that's that, all you know all set up by him yeah well and, that, and that's why i feel like to me it's like in a weird way, the Lost World movie, you didn't really get the Sarah Harding of the book, you know? You got kind yeah. of her with an amalgamation of Levine, but not even, to me, the most interesting. Like, Levine? Levine? I, I actually don't know I don't how to... I Because even, like, Ted, Le, you know, Ted Levine, or Levine, who's in Fallen Kingdom, I'm like, wait, how do you say yeah. his last name? Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I have a pitch-perfect casting, if you were to redo Lost World or okay. introduce this character in a different Jurassic movie, Chris Pine. Think of it. Right. Okay. Chris Pine from Star Trek and like who's handsome, but he's kind of got a punchable face. You know, like <laughs> I think he could I think he could play handsome, spoiled, like, uh, you know, yeah. um, like rich kid cowboy, you know, like. City slicker. Yeah, he's not quite to... got the face of a baddie, but he's the sort of person you could dislike at the same time as him being, you know, on the good side. Yeah, like I think he could play both ways. I think he's a great actor, and I think he could like, I think he could play that role really well. And I think he's a great enough actor that he could really bounce off Jeff Goldblum. Like yeah, I think yeah. I like I could see a world like if they had done that movie differently. I mean, I think Chris Pine yeah. maybe would have been too young at that point, but like. I don't know. I, I, I like actually, I mean, we've already covered it in the first third of the novel, but I do like the introduction between Levine and Malcolm when Malcolm's giving the speech um, at the university and he's just stood at the back of the room and, and you know, and <laughs> starts questioning him about stuff. He's like he's straight away, straight off the bat. He's kind of the annoying guy at the back that that, that Malcolm doesn't really want to speak to, but he's it's trying the... to shake him off. But but the thing and, and we get to it in, in the, you know, the part of the novel that we're talking about today where you kind of almost go back in time and learn a little bit more of their history together. And, and and it's like, he's the annoying guy in the back who is occasionally right. And it's like, again, that to me. That's really, what keeps him inter Malcolm interested. Isn't yeah. It? And what to me makes that dynamic in the novel to me now, like having seen the lost world and now we've gotten these other Jurassic adaptations, like there, that dynamic is still really cool. You know, who knows? Maybe, Maybe they've taken some of that dynamic and put it on somebody else, you know, maybe not the spoiled correct part, but maybe, I don't know, I could see maybe Claire and Malcolm like butting heads, you know, like in that kind of way where maybe they agree with the outcome, but maybe the way that they want to do things is different or disagree with the outcome, but have to work together. Like there's a lot of like meat in that um, contentious relationship. Yeah, and also because we've got so many sort of lead characters in this this next uh, next uh, movie that we, we're going to get, they they can't all agree all of the time. There's going to be some different points of views, isn't there? Yeah. yeah, well, and it makes me excited that everyone. I mean, again, we're we're we're. I mean, people will have seen that by the time this comes out. So, but it's one of those yeah, things. Spoiler where, alert! <laughs> but when you see that, you know, that shot of all of them together, I'm like, thank God, yeah. you know, because. I mean, obviously, that was a mixed success with um, with R the Rise of Skywalker, but there is something f like I want to see all of our characters together. You know, I don't want to see them go off on little side missions separately, you know, like to get to like yeah. see I mean, to see everybody together was just such a I mean, 
yeah and yeah be interesting to learn how they end up in that position whether that that they start in that position and, and go off or whether their stories bring them to to that moment in time when they're all together yeah just that... to see how that plays out yeah so going back to earlier on you were saying about how you had the toys and um <laughs> you used to you know play reenact stuff and, and 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 do all of all of those bits and pieces you've got now the uh the lost world trailer yes i do and it's i mean for, for listeners, I'm sorry that you can't see, but I literally have the box and it's a lovely box. It's in pretty decent condition. I mean, I this this is Doc Thorne. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. this this version of Eddie Carr from the toys. I'm gonna cover yeah, my face yeah. for a second. But I mean, and you know, that dynamic too, like it it's and again, it speaks to Michael Crichton's like science obsessed and contentious specificity is like there's two different types of science, you know, there's like the engineer grizzled engineer, you know, he's kind of like a thorns, like a Ray Arnold type, but I think he's, um, I think he, Ray Arnold gave up in Jurassic park. You know, he's just like, John Hammond's yeah, going to do what he's going to do. Day, yeah. He's going to do what he's going to do. And I'm just going to try and hold back the tide. <laughs> he would have been like, screw you, dude. Like, I feel like no. Thorne is one of these, like, I, I don't this sounds insulting, but um, I, I don't I don't even want to call him a Joe Rogan type, but he's almost like a guy who like a guy with like glasses, but is like ripped, you know, like that to me. Yep. Like J.K. Yeah. Simmons would make a great Doc Thorne. It's like when he goes and grabs Levine from the Rex nest when they first get to the lab, isn't it? Yeah, because he's, um, he, he's like an older guy, but he's still a man of action, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, jumps on the bike and heads off to get him, doesn't he? Doesn't really give it much thought at all. Yeah, well, but he's also so smart. Where he's like, "Well, Eddie, you're the only person who can fix things, so I'm not gonna. Even though you're technically my subordinate, I'm not gonna put you in danger." So he's still yeah. like, he's still again, he's like Crichton, still a brilliant guy, you know. But like, yeah. I think as well, what Crichton does um, brilliantly because he's got such a, a a real knowledge of science is the way in which he writes factual science and fictional science, he sort of interweaves them so well that it's hard to spot where, you know, real science ends and fictional science begins because it's just described in such a way, it's such a believable way. And the situations that the characters are in, um, when he, when he introduces different theories or, or different behaviors or bits of technology, they just seem to fit in that moment in the story. So I think he, it, he entwines the two things so well, you know, the fictional and the, and the real. Well, and I think it's funny too, because I mean, my dad and I were always obsessed with this word verisimilitude, you know, that, that Crichton word of like presenting this thing as real, whether, I mean, the original Jurassic Park opens like this thing happened, you know, and, yeah. um, uh, um, uh, Andromeda strain, you know, these are reports yep. and eaters of the dead. Oh, this is a historical document that inspired Beowulf, you know, stuff like that. And, yeah. you know, lost world, I think can't quite do that because Crichton knows that a movie came out, you know, so we can't quite yeah. Blair witch it, you know, like, yeah. Um, yeah. But in a way, like you said, he gets to explain, I mean, again, the, uh, you know what it is lost world. And especially the section we've read for this episode, it's almost like a school teacher giving a lesson because he's yeah. because and it's funny because he's so clever with the way he's writing it because other characters get annoyed with the riddles. And then you see Malcolm yeah. and 
Le- uh, Levine trying to one up each other with riddles where it's like, ooh, you what what are they doing over there? Oh, it's quite obvious, you know, and it's just like yeah, yeah. all this tit yeah. for tat, but then it's almost like presented as like a school lesson because literally they're testing the kids, you know? Yeah. And to yeah, me, yeah. rereading it this time, I or in listening to it, I really enjoyed that dynamic because it's like, you know, the thing that I f- think the Jurassic franchise has struggled with. Um, in a way that's not really to the fault of its own, is that, you know, the great joy of the original movie was Mr. DNA. And, you know, you yeah. get you get kind of these like lessons in the beginning to sort of set up the world and to set up the believability. Yeah. And so yeah. it's like, how do you, excuse me, how do you, cru- how do you do that kind of edutainment dynamic, you know, in future movies? But in the Lost yeah. World, I think it's a lot of times the way that he is able to achieve a similar effect is with these kind of like school, like, you know, you've got a dinosaur heading this way at 30 miles per hour and a dinosaur going this way. And there's somebody on the train, tra- you know, like, I mean, it's yeah. obviously well yeah. more thought out and scientific, but like, Try you know, to work it out, sort of the, 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 uh, the sauropods and the like eating from the trees and stuff like that stuff. He just like, you're, you're so right. It's like that stuff just sings off the page. It's so it's yeah. so enjoyable, you know. How did you find the pacing of this part of the novel? I mean, I think it's like Jurassic Park. I think the middle of his books are always the best. I always think that this stuff is always just like, you know, it's it's. Being Why do you with, think that is? I think because it's where is I don't know. It's I think he's somebody who because again of his distrust of science and his contentious relationship, he feels like he has to set up so much stuff that maybe we don't even really need. I mean, you you think about so much of like the original Jurassic park, like there's scenes in Gennaro's office and you're just like, what, who, um, you know, the lab with the, well, obviously the original Jurassic park sets up this kind of mystery, but I mean that, that to me is my point with the force awakens of it all, where it's like, I think, ultimately a problem with lost world is it's like, why are we pretending like dinosaurs are a legend or a myth? Like Malcolm's right there. Like, and, and it's not even until we get to, to like the point that we're talking about where it's like, Malcolm is like, actually I went to Jurassic park and it came true. (laughs) I mean, there is an effective like chilling element of the way that he's talking about it, but it's like, yeah, I could see Spielberg being like, we know, Dan, we know, like, come on, like, let's just get to, like, why do we have to pretend it's a myth? Like, you could see Malcolm being like Han Solo and Force Wiggins, like, no, it's true, all of it, you know, like, uh, like, to the, you know, it's a very similar effect, like, rereading it this time, yeah. where, like, Ray is Levine, but um, Levine is way more annoying, but, like, um, yeah. you know, it's almost to the point where it's like, I, I, you know, obviously, like, we like the Crichton-ness. We like the kind of mystery. I mean, the scene yeah. on the beach with the carcass is, to me, one of the most haunting images in all of Jurassic yeah. Park from the first yeah, part. Yeah, really well done. And so, to me, I think that's why I like the middle part the best and why it has the best pacing, because it has the most, like, twists and turns and reveals and setups. And, you know, it's yeah. it's just the most, it's the most dynamic, you know, because I feel like once... Malcolm gets hurt it's like oh they're just waiting for this thing to arrive you know and there is a tension to that like especially when Arby is in the convenience store and you know I I know this is for future but like the Carnotaurus scene in the tennis courts I think is one of the greatest it's quite quick and intense that last third isn't it yeah it's kind of like you know you've got you've got the first the first third is very much building the story character development like you say getting to the island I mean we you know there's a lot of time off the island. <laughs> then you've got this middle bit where where 
I don't know. It feels like it's, I suppose it's the real story. Yes. This bit. This yeah, that's bit. a great and point. And then the last bit's kind of almost like the action movie finale. Yes. It's all very yes. fast paced with one thing after the other. And the predicaments that they find themselves just keep happening one after the other, don't they? Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. You're so, correct. Yeah. 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 I, I wonder what's your, in this, uh, this middle section, what's your favorite scene or sequence or part of this bit of the book? Um, I mean, I mean, we've got, you know, there's, there's Sarah getting to the island. We've got the, the Rex nest, um, Dodgson's crew and the, the sound device. I, I love that. I mean, I really like, uh, I mean, it wasn't a horse. I mean, that's just, yeah. it's, I think it's, yeah. I mean, he's being intentionally funny, but it's like even more funny because I feel like Michael Crichton isn't known for being comedic. So I feel like that's yeah. why that moment like sings. And that moment was also referenced in uh, Fallen Kingdom with the uh, Sinoceratops licking yeah. uh, licking Owen's face. That's like a true one yeah. for one like reference or not one for one because it's a different dinosaur, but in a different character. But it's, it's the same thing, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you know what? I really do like the reveal. It's funny. I'm criticizing the reveal, but I do like the way. Malcolm kind of blows everyone's minds. He's like, what? Why would they make a theme park? Like, what are you talking about? You know, and he's just like, but I think it's funny because it is, but, but, but also the idea that the like, but the real twist is the idea that Jurassic Park wasn't perfect. That the, that they kind of brush over that in the movie. It's kind of like second Island, blah, 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 whatever. Like obviously, but, I, but what I appreciate about the lost world as a book is like, no, that's the point. Like the, the like, yeah, you can't just like throw dinosaur blood from a 65 million year old mosquito into an egg and be like, boom, perfect dinosaur. Like the way yeah. that they're trying to like show and explain that idea of, oh, my God, there's like a hole behind the curtain that we just like. I, I definitely yeah, the I lab feel, and the virus and, and all of the sort of the background story involved in making these things. Yeah, I find that stuff so fascinating. J Jurassic Park three almost goes into that territory. They kind of like, yeah, like they kind of put a little bit of lip service to it, you know, with the sequence in the lab. This is how you play God, you know, like, um, yeah, I feel like those. I, feel, I actually when I this this last time round when I read the novel um, just um, when they first show up at the at the lab and they're walking through the very first time and Eddie's talking about how the island got power and stuff like that, the way that that's described, I, I instantly imagined the JP3 lab um, <laughs> when reading it because it, it, it felt like those two things were, you could almost see that the writers or the director in JP3 was trying to sort of go down that route, but they, I don't know, they, they just, I don't know, changed direction at the last minute, but the building and the facility at least feels very much like what you read in the lost world. Oh, a hundred percent. And you know, that's the thing I talk a lot about on see Jurassic, right. When it comes to interviewing people about JP three or whenever that comes up and why, you know, currently as far as franchise ranking, ranking <clears throat> as, as far as franchise rankings go, it's Jurassic park, fallen kingdom, JP three for me, because JP three is because it's missing 30 minutes from its runtime as compared to the other movies, you can fill that, you can fill it with possibilities. And for me, yeah. the one thing I would fill that with, if I had 30 extra minutes to like, what would you add to JP three to like flesh it out to be like, you know, to give it that thematic purpose that I think it's kind of lacking as compared to the other movies. I think you would fill it with that stuff. Like all the scenes about, 
about, you know, I mean, at the beginning, Alan says, you know, like Hammond's monsters, they're not dinosaurs. And so you have the evidence in this book to really like show the yeah. process of that. And, and, you know, again, going to other, some of other Creighton's other work, there's just something so haunting about seeing like a, you're on this overgrown Island, Rocky, you know, they, they, Creighton goes to oh, great lengths to show that nobody should be on this Island. And then all of a sudden you're yeah. like in a perfectly sterile lab. Like it's just some of the most chilling imagery. Like it's very, um, yeah. you know, right now liminal spaces and back rooms are like very popular on the internet. And like, to me, like if I were in the middle of a jungle and walked into a clean white lab, like that's terrifying. The context would be so, it would be so out, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know, those two, two environments shouldn't live side by side. And also I think it, it really pulls you into the story, those sorts of things as well, because you're, you're busy concentrating on the characters and the adventure they're going through. Then you've got the dinosaurs in the mix and, you know, all the majesty that they bring and the threat that they bring. But then he also builds the world in as well. So it, there's so many sort of dimensions to the story and he spends time on each of them. You know, they're, they're not just throw away. Oh, yeah, they walk through the lab. He actually goes into it. And like he'll make he'll say things like this isn't directly what he says, but like, you know, they glanced into this particular room or they walked past this door and it was a jar or something like that. And it just gives you that intrigue and he sort of builds a picture in your mind of the environment. Yeah. Well, and also to to I think even, you know, as far as building out Jurassic canon, you know, with a lot of, you know, with chaos theorem and the work that they're doing, I think they also saw a lot of potential in that as well, where like, you know, supposedly during the events of JP3, Wu was already back on that island making dinosaurs again. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, if you could imagine a world where, you know, they talk about the Jurassic era, you know, in this new preview, like, if you could go back and update JP3, Henry Wu looks amazing. You could make him look, you know, 15 years younger, like... You don't even yeah. have to de-age him. Just throw like yeah. a, a, you know, just throw a couple of scenes of Wu on the island, maybe watching the action of what's going on. And he's like, shit, they're going to find my lab, you know, like. Yeah. yeah. But then the raptor. I thought that actually, because you've got that bit where they break into the vending machines and get some chocolate bars or something out of there. And I'm thinking initially, I was thinking, well, you know, how long, how long have they been? Those chocolate bars been on that island. You yeah. know? <laughs> You're not going to be eating those. But well, then when you add it, when you throw that in that perhaps there's people on the island. Yeah. All of a sudden that makes sense. And like it's kind of Amanda sinister picks up too. the phone and there's no dial tone, is there? But you wonder, well, what if Wu's cut the power or pulled the phone oh, line when yeah. he sees them going into the building? Because he doesn't want them to, you know, it, yeah, they might go get off the island if they manage to make a call to the mainland. But then if that happens, you know, his cover's going to be blown or something like that. Well, yeah, because I mean, at least in the context of the Lost World novel, the disturbed areas are, they're following... Um, Richard Levine's trail. But what if, yeah. what if in JP three, the sort of broken down, they like, they purposely let the outer shell of the lab get to be this dilapidated uh, state. But then what if like Grant is looking at all of a sudden he's like, huh, this area is clean and then opens a door. Yeah. And then that's where the actual, like actively working place is still like, I could see Wu yeah. almost like leaving the shell of this to sort of put off people. So they don't, you know they don't uh stiff out his trail or whatever yeah absolutely like if there was some sort of um us or costa rican government officials that t went to the island or something like that to see if there was anything going on it was a, a way of covering up by leaving it in that sort of state yeah absolutely i i think i think you could really flesh it out with that there's the bit earlier on in jp3 where he's talking to billy and he's, he's saying what is it um 
Barry Onyx. He's, he's saying, you know, think bigger. And then there's a line where he says that wasn't on InGen's list. Yeah. And that just makes you think, well, yeah. So it, there's every, there's, it, it's quite likely that there could still be stuff going up, up on that island that we just don't, you know, we just don't know about. Yeah. And, and so. I think it, I think it is to the credit of, and again, again, because we're, you know, going to have six Jurassic Park movies and, and, uh, you know, at least four seasons of an animated show. I mean, I think at least guaranteed five, maybe six. Like, I'm sure they'll go to five at least, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and so it's almost like, yeah, like kind of how we have been framing this conversation of like what's in here that we can still – like what is in here that's still captivating? And to me, rereading those scenes, it just brought me right back to being a kid too of like – almost like those first feelings of like, ugh, this feels weird. And, and you know, another moment that really stuck out to me that I think nobody has really touched at all in the Jurassic movies is Arby's okay. reaction to dinosaurs coming back where he's like, this feels wrong. I think they yeah. touch on it a little bit in the round table projector sequence in the original Jurassic park movie. Yeah. But almost like that existential yeah. threat of like, Ugh, like dinosaurs and man together like this is weird this shouldn't be but having it through the eyes of a child makes it almost more scary you know without without the physical part of it but like just the idea of like wait we're all back in the mix together like what's that gonna mean you know like ellie touches on it a little bit but yeah it's just I, I, that's yeah, you make a good point actually yeah because everyone's so um sort of uh what's the word besotted by the fact that they brought the, the dinosaurs back but actually you know, is that a good thing that they, we both, we, you know, we lived in different worlds, you yeah. know, the environments were different, the, the ecosystems, everything was different. And, and they do talk about that in the visitor center. You're right. They like, you know, even Grant, you know, what does he say? Something like, you know, two species how can we possibly by millions of years. Yeah. yeah how can we yeah. possibly have any idea how, what to expect, you know? So in the, in this um, second third of the novel, I wondered if you could take any part of it, and have it produced in a movie, uh, so in a cinematic way. Which bit do you think would would work the best on the big screen? I, I mean, I mean, again, my my, I mean, Penny, I'm gonna say my favorite part, or what I would want to turn into a movie. Um, I mean, I want to pick a dinosaur moment, and I think the sound stuff is just so interesting. It's so yeah. It's, you know, I, I, I scream this from the rooftops a lot, which is the most science fiction part of Jurassic Park is always going to be the dinosaurs. Everything else is actually more factual than than. Yeah. Than you know, we've weaponized animals, you know. Uh, well, I guess human cloning now is probably the most science fiction part of Jurassic Park. But like and and I think there are actually weapons that are sound kind of things, but. It, it's, yeah. you know, it. we've been talking a lot about more of maybe more of the heady stuff with The Lost World, because I think that's was primarily Creighton's concern with the book, less so than maybe the action. But I just yeah. think that's such an evocative thing. Like, well, you know, I, I would say Camp Cretaceous maybe has played with that a little bit, you know, with the drones and all that stuff, especially in the latest season, you know, and yeah. sort of the the implants and things like that. Like that kind of stuff has been really cool in in the latest Camp Cretaceous season, so I feel like the sound weapons could be like another, just another thing to add into the mix, so that it's not just like, 
you know, it, it is people being eaten by dinosaurs, but now there's another element that makes it kind of fun, you know? Yeah, I think I think what I like about what you're saying there as well is it's not um, there's a lot of moments in the movies with dinosaurs where the dinosaur just turns up, eats the person, stomps or treads on the person <laughs> and roars and runs off again. Whereas the, that whole sequence in the nest there, when you've got the sound device, it really builds the tension. You know, you think they've got away with it. They've got the egg. And then when that cord gets pulled <laughs> out from the from the battery pack. No. You can imagine. I imagine if Spilbo was doing it, there would be no music there. Like he would have no John Williams or anything. Like, yeah, we would just have that the complete silence, silence in the in the theater, and the realization that they're in really big trouble. Because you know, it, it's scary enough having that massive T Rex right there on you. And I like the way that Crichton writes about how it's behaving and it's agitating, it's moving sort of side to side because it's you know it doesn't know what's going on, and then the cord gets pulled and all of a sudden the the game just changes instantly. Well, and I think too, you know, for, for the thing that I, I am appreciating about the Jurassic world franchise is expanding the animals beyond metaphor, you know, like, you know, Jurassic park very much, you know, dinosaurs are a metaphor for this, that, and the other nature, whatever hubris, a man can't control this thing, all that stuff. I, I yeah. like anything that expands you know, if, apologies if you hear my cat occasionally, but you know, it's like in, and I do a cat podcast and we say this a lot that, you know, cats aren't people, but they're individuals. And so I like elements in any story where the animals get to be, you know, the T-Rex isn't representative of all T-Rexes. It's this specific yeah. T-Rex. So I like, yeah. I like those kind of elements. And I think, you know, and the characteristic individual characteristic behaviors. Yeah. And so, you know, again, for all we've been talking about how maybe Crichton wasn't as interested in the nuts and bolts of the dinosaurs per se. I think this is where he's combining action and, you know, dinosaur character and behavior. I think he did it really well to, to create a, yeah, like you're saying, like <laughs> the cord goes out and you're just like, shit, you know, like it's just terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love yeah. to see that on the big screen. Just, just so even think, you could have later, you know. Again, not to spoil the later uh, of the novel, but you know, um, you know, having you know it not working, you know, just having that dynamic, you could really create a lot of great moments with it. I think what's quite cool as well is how the Rex um, in the loss in the, in the novel here he writes the Rexes as being like family pair you know they're a, a male and a female and they've got the, the babies and how they nurture and care for them and then in the complete contrast to that you've got the raptors that are very wild and undeveloped Ooh. and they're very um aggressive and there's well, no there's kind of no nurture between them at all because they're quite happy to attack and eat each other aren't they yeah you know what i didn't you know that's another element from the book that yeah they haven't really haven't I mean I guess they've sort of touched on it a little bit with the Indoraptor, the sort of like Frankenstein's monster, mm. sort of like it's not natural, you know, and so it doesn't know how to behave like a real animal. Yeah. But I yeah. there there was something very evocative to or it's just like like and I think that's the existential threat that RB is feeling that is like, oh, like yeah. the laws of nature are messed up. You know, we've yeah. we've messed it up, you know, and it's played for comedic effect with the parasaurs, you know, in this section. Yeah. But then it has yeah. those. With the pain. And then but then, yeah, like it 
it goes the full range in this part too, which is again, why I feel like this is this middle section is just my favorite part of this novel as well, yeah. because you can, you have humorous moments and uh, terrifying moments, you know, but, but thematically saying, you know, like uh, reinforcing each other. Yeah. I think as well, what's interesting in this bit is the, I think I'm right in saying this, but the deaths that we get in the middle third of the novel are all of in brackets, the bad guys, um, even though they're not really bad guys, they're just under Dodgson's, you know, control. But it, you know, the the terror happens to to them. It's not until later on that things change for, you know, Malcolm's crew, if you yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's quite interesting, really, as well. That that he sort of um, he concentrates. It's quite a lot of of their story, and there's we've got this whole sequence where King and Dodgson are trying to they jump in the jeep and they're trying to escape the wrecks, and yeah. one comes out in front of them. So they have to shift into reverse and then the other one comes out and then they, they end up crashing and the Jeep's hanging over the edge of oh. the cliff. And I think that sets it up really well and moves the next part with the uh, King in the, in the long grass, which is in the third bit of the novel. I know, but yeah, yeah. It, it kind of, it kind of really uh, up until that point, they're together as a unit, they're in the vehicle, there's the three of them. And by the time we finish this third of the novel, they're split up. One of them's dead. They're in all sorts the of leg. trouble. So it, it, Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. yeah brilliantly again like yeah, it, I, it, it it's kind of hitting me now how much this in a weird way this novel had more of like an impact in my youth as far as like yeah. and you know and i wonder if if that is why a lot of people do desire a more violent and graphic version of the Jurassic park franchise you know i yeah because they've got the books as a foundation you mean yes yeah and so for me this is like I mean, maybe I was too young. I don't know. But but, uh, you know, I, I mean, I saw Jurassic Park when I was six. So was I too young to read the Lost World novel at 10? I don't know. But no. uh, I mean, apparently I was too young to read the swear words, you know, which my dad had his work cut out for him because Dodson <laughs> swears a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He does. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I'm. Yeah. Now I'm just thinking about the uh, basalt. Is that how you say his name? Basalton? Basalt. Basilton? I, I say Basilton, but it might be Basilton. It, to be honest with you, it, different people I speak to say all of the names differently. I well, think everyone can agree on Malcolm. But yeah, yeah. Well, and, yeah, well, because, yeah, a lot of these names we haven't heard outside of the, the novel. Yeah, you know? exactly. So we've not seen, yeah, yeah, we've not heard anybody actually say it. Well, in, yeah, you're in right. Because James says Basilton, I think, in the yeah. Unicast yeah. reading. But I think he starts off with Levine and then ends with Levine as oh. well. So yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. Yeah. So I wonder, a um, couple, couple of questions before we, before we um, wrap things up. I wondered um, if you think we will see any of the Biasin or Dodgson sequences or behaviors in Dominion. Uh, oh, I... What I mean by that is, you know, will, will his character behave in this way or do you think they'll write him in a bit differently? I mean, it is, I think you have the potential to, I don't know, because the thing that I'm curious about Dotson, I'm wondering if they're going to present him as a good guy, that it's almost oh, like okay. because, oh, look at Hammond. He screwed up. Look at um, Masrani. Masrani. He screwed up. And it's almost like he's the, he's like the Steve Jobs type who's like, come in and like, I can I can save whatever this notion of bringing dinosaurs back to life. Like I'm going to get it right. Like to me, that would be very interesting because I don't know if I don't really like the theories. uh, And I've talked to Brad about this a lot, but I'm like, 
I, I don't want to, I don't really like the notion of like machinations and stuff, you know, like of Wu being some evil mastermind or, you know, like, I, you know, I, I, I like the idea almost that Dotson has had like a secret grudge, but in the, but the, you know, the best way to get revenge is to like thrive, you know? And so, to almost, do it right. so it's almost like I could see Dotson in this version because he's still a manipulative person, still taking advantage. You know, there's lots of great conversation in this part of the novel of like research, which is steal somebody's work and do it better or at least patent it, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I could see like a version of, and I, I honestly haven't seen any of C- Campbell Scott's acting, but I, he's good looking, you know? Um, and I could almost like see him, I could see him playing one of those things where it is like, he's secretly a bad guy, but to the world, he's like, he's like come in to clean up the mess and he, he's going to be the savior of whatever this technology is. Like I could see them yeah. playing that out, but then in private, you know, you yeah, have these kind of, very, yeah, he's unsavory. Yeah, interesting. Know? Yeah. That's, that's, that is an interesting way of, um, pitching him actually. Yeah. That, 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 that everyone thinks that you could even have like news reports or whatever, focusing on him as, as being the person that's cleaning up the mess or that's, putting the right things in place and and like you say behind the scenes he's not at all he's he's got his own he's got his own agenda yeah what claire and owen did was selfish and they let the dinosaurs out and we need to find this little girl and hold her accountable or whatever you know like yeah 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 or like would actually feed into his behavior in the novel in the way that he's able to just change his persona and the way that he presents himself to people depending on what his agenda is yeah And, and yeah you could do it in a way that isn't you know, because again, it's like Jurassic villains. I, I I feel like Jurassic villains, both in the movie and the novels, they're 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 always like they're like victims of opportunity in a way. You know, like yeah, they they you know for some reason or another, whether it's like greed or desperation or something, they're always like I can take advantage of this situation. You know, like um, yeah. Um, Vincent D'Onofrio's, why can't I remember his name right now? Um, oh, uh, oh, well, why is it totally, but yeah, Vincent, D'O- um, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like trying to say, like, I'm trying to like say his name, uh, you traitor, you were going to use, like, I'm trying to imagine saying his name as one of the other characters. It's going to come later on when oh. we speak and I'll just. Just, Everyone's just screaming, listening to the podcast right now. But yeah, yeah Vin- Vincent yeah. D'Onofrio's character, like, you know, like you're in over your head. And I think I, I love the way that they've played with that dynamic in each film. I think every I think to me, like, I think people kind of oh, like I think they underrate the villains of Jurassic. But I think that they're all very dynamic and interesting. And like they're always doing things for reasons that they think are correct or like you know, they, they have a purpose to them, you know? And so I yeah. like the idea of giving Dotson or of, yeah, I like the idea of giving Dotson a better purpose than just like, I mean, what would he have to get revenge for? Like he lost a couple thousand bucks. Like, I, I mean, yeah. I, I just don't see them like having like a down and out Dotson because like, then how could he even do any of his villain? Like he has to be a successful villain in order to be the villain of this movie. In, in that sense. Yeah, he, he ha- and he has to have been working on whatever he's been working on for a long period of time, I would have yeah. thought as well. It can't just be that, you know, all of a sudden he shows up and he's got, I don't know, he's made his wealth somewhere else or, or whatever. I, th- I feel like he has to have been doing something in the background over these years that we're going to 
find out or get some sort of reveal or something along those lines. Yeah, so so in that way you could still play it as the novel where it is almost like this idea of like embryos embryos were last year we're getting eggs now you know like that to me shows it's not machinations in the sense it's not machinations where it's personal it's machinations as like this is the future and that's like kind of scary you know and that's what like howard king was like when he saw dotson working sarah harding he's like oh god like i know what this person's capable of and i'm terrified you know yeah yeah because he's upset with him after that, isn't he? Yeah. Um, and Dodge is just, I don't know, he just, he has, just finds a way of sort of brushing it off, really. Well, that's what... He tells but, him just not, you know, not to worry about You it. didn't see anything. And the Sultan's like, yeah. Basilton's like, I was downstairs the whole... Like, I, yeah. that's, that's my hope for Dominion. You know, I don't know, you know, I don't think we would get... I mean, I think if they were going to, like, create characters as important as, like, uh, as Howard King and George uh, Basilton, like, you would hire maybe bigger name actors or something like that. So they might just be more red shirts in that sense. But like, yeah. I hope we still get some like thugs or like, you know, I hope we get some like lackeys for Dotson that get yeah. to like, at least get their fates met in like interesting and fun ways, you know? Yeah. So they're not just stood there with a weapon in the background. They actually sort of, you know, help him cover things up or they're involved in his conspiracy or something like that. So yeah, there's they're, more meaning than, you know? Yeah. They're more like a Dieter Stark level side character you know they've got a bit more of meat to them you know <laughs> yeah, i suppose like um who, who's the who, what's the hunter called in fallen kingdom that gets eaten by the indoraptor uh oh um ted levine's character ken wheatley ken wheatley yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean he he's i mean he's there to be killed he's in the movie to be killed but i feel like they they spent a little bit of time at least kind of making him this evil guy when he's pulling the teeth out of the stegosaurus and stuff like that or gun, so gunner eversol you know um yeah What's his face? Oh, I can't remember that actor's name, but you know, the, the auctioneer, you know? Oh yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. He's great in it, but yeah, he's, he, yeah, he's this horrible, horrible character, isn't he? So <laughs> when it, when it, you know, eventually he gets uh, eaten in the ele- escalator, the um, elevator, sorry. He, um, I don't know. You don't like him. You, you know, you, you, he's a greedy guy, isn't he? He's, yeah. He's, he's not the, you're not backing him. So yeah, definitely. It's it's really good when they flesh out that flesh out the bad guys instead of them just being somebody in the background that just you know cannon the, fodder. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you kind of answered my last question actually um, with with what you were just saying, but I just wondered what your um, hopes and fears were for the upcoming Dominion movie. I mean, it's funny because. Dominion just I mean even before we saw the trailer like the fact that Dotson as a character is coming back the fact that um the trio is coming back and um I was very lucky I got to go see the screening of Battle of Big Rock where Laura Dern came out and said hey I'm gonna be in Dominion and you know I got to be there for that announcement and you know Colin Trevorrow was like you know not a cameo like those elements um, the photo of the original visitor center with the site B container. So, yeah. so it's like, as far as like elements that are, that we know as a concept are already being introduced into this movie are already well and above anything I could have imagined as far as like connective tissue. Um, right, okay. and then, yeah, seeing, seeing the trailer, I, I I think Colin Trevorrow just saw what happened with the and and I really like all the uh, sequel trilogy Star Wars movies, but I think I think because he left you know 
he got you know whatever the disagreement was that he no longer yeah, did he was episode only on nine. The project for a short time wasn't he yeah i think that gave him some that made like that sparked a like i have something to prove mm. um and then combined with i mean emily carmichael's great work i mean specifically on battle at big rock too like to me battle at big rock is the best thing colin trevorrow has ever directed it's tight obviously it's a short film but the tension the yeah. scenes work the dynamics are all great so much magic amy doherty's score like I think cinematically it's very good as well, isn't it? It's very dramatic. Yeah. And that's why I wish, I wish they would just play it on the big screen because seeing it in theaters was, I mean, it just even registers on an even bigger level and I just want more people to see it. But, um, you know, so for my hopes, like it's already gone about well, because, you know, in my mind, especially post fallen kingdom, like I thought we were just going to get a movie with just, and I like, Claire and Owen and Macy, but I just thought we were like, okay, it's just gonna be a movie about them. I don't know, saving blue or something. But like, yeah. to me, all these new added elements just, just make it already like beyond my wildest dreams. So I'm just, the, the only fear would be, you know, is it just pays lip service to any of that stuff. But I mean, the, I mean, even the trailer already gave us like, like I've been dreaming of that. And, you know, I'm sure it's going to play out a little bit differently in theaters, but the, the meeting of, Grant and Sattler again after on the dig side almost 30 years the trailer version of that already is like beyond beyond so I I, my my only thing is that it's only going to get as good as the trailer you know which is unfortunate but you know Jurassic traditionally hasn't had good trailer like if I had to rank the trailers like Jurassic Park Lost World Dominion you know like the top three trailers you know like, yeah. or, or, you know, I mean, it's kind of unfair because the first teasers of Jurassic and Lost World are what we remember. We don't remember the trailer for Jurassic Park. We remember the, you know, man yeah. brought back dinosaurs and zoom in on the amber and, you know, or Lost yeah, yeah. World. Something, yeah. you know, has yeah, yeah, the ripples, survived, yeah. you know, yeah, like yeah. you can't really compare those. But the Dominion trailer gave me the sense of gravitas that I'm hoping for when Colin says something in interviews where it's like, I want people to like appreciate all these movies, not just Jurassic park and a couple of sequels. It's like, no, like we've invested all this time. We love this world and these characters. And I feel like the trailer at least is presenting an idea that, that they might actually do it. You know, I think that's, what's really interesting about it from, from watching the trailer. I've watched it a number of times. I've been through a number of emotions with, with what I've seen but I come away from it ultimately thinking if they can, if there's a way to bring all of bits of all of these movies together in a way that you, not necessarily that you can explain everything that happens sure. and all the timelines match it. Cause I think that's just an impossible thing to try and do. Yeah. You'd have but to, if you you'd have to go back and feel like they're all inclusive in one way or another would be, would be really cool. And I do like the fact um with the Grant and Ellie scene that you were referring to is that it's back in on a dig site because we literally, apart from the, the Raptor attack, we literally start on a dig site, don't we? Yeah. Where it's panning up from them, you know, digging out a Raptor or, or, or whatever species it is. And it feels like, you know, going back to what we were just saying, that is like bringing it right back to Jurassic, bringing, you know, digging up dinosaurs is where all of this starts in truth. 
So that's quite interesting. I'm really fascinated to see which way it goes. Well, and you know, that's the thing, like, again, I've joked a lot on my podcast. It's like, I really just want to know what Emily and Colin think of JP3. And I want to know sort of what lessons they take from it, because I feel like whatever their opinions are of that movie is probably going to inform how they brought back those two characters in that way. And it's crazy to me because I think I've debated a lot about the ending of JP three, you know, we, we, to go from like, you know, Billy is the astronaut and Grant is the astronomer. Yeah. yeah. But in this, I, I talked with my good buddy Omar last summer. I did like a back to basics, just like, Omar is my like yep. oldest JP friend, you know, from college. And it was just like, I realized a version of JP three looking at that movie is it's Grant learning to love dinosaurs again, yeah. oddly, because at the beginning of the movie, he's scared, he's traumatized. He never wants to experience it again. I think it's why him and Ellie couldn't be together because I think she was able to reconcile what happened to her, but I don't think Grant could ever confront it. Men go to therapy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much therapy therapy could fix you being attacked by dinosaurs. I don't know, but yeah, that's quite, yeah. it's the big tall order. The therapist <laughs> is Grant's therapist is like, Oh, I can't do this. You're gonna have to find somebody yeah. else. But yeah. I, I will say to me and why, why like, you know, I mean, why Jurassic is just so much fun to talk about is like, I, I walked away from that conversation last year being like, oh, JP3 is about Grant learning to love dinosaurs again. And so the fact that there's like a twinkle in Grant's eye in the trailer and you could tell he's like, he's going to be grumpy, but you can tell he, I mean, he literally, the one scene's showing him holding something to throw. You know, he's going to throw hands with some dinosaurs or maybe kick because that's usually what he does. He's usually (laughs) kicking dinosaurs, but um, that's not one for using a weapon really, is he? He even drops it in, in Jurassic Park. So yeah, yeah. So he's, he's gonna, with his bare hand. <laughs> yeah, that's like at the end of that trailer, he just drops the thing, and then he just drop kicks like a Velociraptor or a Pyroraptor, or whatever. But like to me, like even the trailer showing that Grant kind of has a little twinkle in his eye, and like you know, you're gonna come like let's go on an adventure. Like that's what I want, you know. Like that's what I want from a Jurassic Park movie. I want people to want to be there and go on adventures. You know. Well, we we're we're nearly there. We, we, we're not far off. We're going to get to find out. If you ever want anybody to talk JP three, I'm your man. I, oh man, I, I love that film. It's uh, it's so good. And like you say, if anything, the shortness of it is one of the best things of it in the <laughs> sense that it leaves so much to the imagination. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Well, um, Stephen, thank you very very much for taking the time to speak to me. Um, I appreciate we've been trying to get this together and, and actually get the opportunity to chat it out. Um, so it's, I'm really pleased we managed to do it. And um, I always really enjoy listening to hearing what you've got to say about everything Jurassic. I'm oh, thank a huge you. fan of your, your podcast as oh, well. Thank you. Well, again, so, like I, like we were talking about before, I definitely, we definitely have to get you on because I, I feel like I know bits and pieces of your Jurassic journey, but I, I the thing that I like doing in my podcast really is just sort of, you know, how did we all get here? You know, so I'd yeah. love to I'd love to sit down with you sometime and, and go through the go through all that. Oh, that that would be fantastic. I, I'd absolutely love that. <laughs> Again, that I was really cool. I was complimenting you earlier because you do, you know, JP Motorpool and all that stuff. And I I've one of the projects I've been working on is slowly building the the um, Kenner Hasbro trailer from when I was a kid. And you're actually working on a new actual Jurassic Park, a real car, not a toy. And I was just like. I mean, again, yeah. We, yeah, we'll we'll talk about it, but I'm yeah that that's I mean, yeah. like, 
you know, the coolest Jurassic Park fans. I mean, every Jurassic Park fan is cool, but it's just like when you have an actual vehicle, it's like, oh, my heart is so full when I see like I, I feel like it's not a quick thing, though. I, I, I will tell you it takes time. <laughs> yeah, It's just to me, it's like life is just better when you're just going around and then you see a Jurassic Park vehicle in real life. It oh, just yeah. makes it just makes it, even if you're not like a hardcore Jurassic fan, if you see an Explorer, if you see the you know the jeep if, even if you see any of the jurassic world style vehicles people know those now too and it's just like yeah yeah people get excited they take pictures it's like dinosaurs yeah. are dinosaurs are real but maybe they're back too who knows yeah well exactly yeah i, I kind of have that i imagine that every time i'm out in it i'm blessed Ugh. actually every time i come out of my front door and there it is i'm i'm, I'm very lucky Ugh. so yeah it, I, I do consider myself to be very lucky on that front but uh, to be honest with you i love seeing everything uh, jurassic everybody in the community all the different you know the toy collectors the there's there's such a wide variety of um ways to be involved in all the, all the jurassic fandom oh 100 um, percent. and there's some really creative people as well like yourself with the work that you do, um, Brad on the Jurassic Park podcast, um, David at Jurassic Collectibles, Tom Jurassic, Joe uh, Breeze back to that Fox doing the illustrations yes. on the, on the Folio Victoria's novels. Victoria's Cantina, you know, BDH fan art. To like... be honest, you could never name everybody because it's <laughs> such a long list. Oh, everyone's um, incredible. But, yeah, they are, absolutely they are. It's, it's a it's a fantastic community. I, I feel so lucky to be involved in 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 doing this stuff so and and um and like i say it was a it was a real pleasure chatting with you again and, and thank you very much for your time of course i'm just wondering where can people find you if they don't already know where you are <laughs> where, where they can uh you can find me at Stephen ray morris and all the things and yes yeah, see uh, jurassic right has been kind of like intermittent but it's the road to dominion baby it's it's gonna be yeah. you know i, I want to be there for every step of the way that's the podcast got started with the road to fallen kingdom. And that is tr that like six months to a year was like truly some of the highest highs and joys of being a Jurassic fan. And I'm actually very thankful in a way that the movie got pushed back a year because I feel like, you know, depending on people's states of, of pandemic and, you know, again, fingers crossed and I want everyone to, you know, engage as much as they can safely. But it feels like, I, I just definitely feel like it would, would have been such a bummer to have, to have all watched it on, you know, peacock or whatever uh you know yeah. last yeah, june yeah. i'm like 100 percent. you've got it it's got to be seen in the cinema because or, or even yeah. now we've worked out the kinks like people can go to outdoor movies you know there's just so many more yeah. ways to view it now that it, it, it than a year ago I, I just feel like and people have gotten more creative so i just have, with even engaging online so i feel like no matter what it's going to be a good time for part two of the Lost World Jurassic Park Book Club. There's so much I love from this part of the book alone. I love like <clears throat> the air of mystery surrounding 
the long-abandoned engine facilities, and the questions raised from the clues that uh, our characters find, including questions regarding how many species did engine actually manufacture and then abandon on Sorna, especially since <clears throat> we're getting species that were never listed for Nublar. I mean, maybe perhaps some of them were being saved to premiere at Hammond's other addition, other planned additional parks. I also love uh, all the discussions and debates between Malcolm, Thorne, Levine, Arby, and Kelly and the, throughout this uh, section of the book. In fact, the Lost World novel was my first introduction to concepts like the Red Queen hypothesis and, and uh, the several other complex theories in biology, evolution, and behavior, well before I actually encountered these concepts in my high school and college biology courses. At the time, I didn't really understand nor actually appreciate these concepts until I was older and more educated into their significance and larger schemes of both the, the book and in real life itself. And, and they're all very incredible discussions and concepts that Michael Crichton tries to explain to, to the readers in this novel. Granted, some details about uh, the theories and hypotheses he presents have changed a bit here and there, but they're still incredible to read and think about. I love how detailed Crichton is with uh, the lost world of Sorna, the animals and their behaviors. They actually feel like authentic, natural animals living as any organisms would in a natural environment. I used to, and when I, when I was young, I <clears throat> I used to actually reenact some of the scenes depicting depicting some of these dinosaur behaviors while I was playing with uh, my Kenner Jurassic dinosaurs as a kid. And I still um, <clears throat> and I still have questions regarding uh, the behaviors and traits of the animals seen on Sorna versus what we saw in Nublar, namely the raptor's behavior, and that can be saved for discussion part three. But something else I do uh, question how certain behaviors came about on Sorna. Um, how, how much of their behaviors were genetically inherited from their Mesozoic ancestors versus what might actually be unique to the circumstances of, on Sorna, such as interspecies mutualisms between the Parasaur and Apatosaur herds, since these species were naturally separated by tens of millions of years. Did these species have similar mutual defensive relationships with other herbivore species in their respective times? And are the clone uh, species instinctually filling that niche uh, with each other? And uh, what behaviors were natural to the original species versus what might be a byproduct of either genetic splicing or the SORN environment? So many interesting questions raised there that are just fun and interesting to contemplate. And I love some of the uh, great character moments that happen throughout this throughout this book too uh, with our main characters. Maybe some interesting words to use for characters like uh, Levine. But Doc Thorne is still uh, my personal favorite character from this novel. And I, and I really love how Crichton starts to build the relationship between Kelly and Sarah. How Kelly is in like awe of Sarah when she finally meets her. And how Sarah kind of takes up this actual mentorship for Kelly and starts teaching her some important life lessons that Kelly, Arby, and um, really any readers can take to heart. And it's like the same thing with uh, Thorne himself too when you see his relationship uh, with uh, Kelly and Arby as well. There's so much more I could e that I could easily dive into, and uh, but I have to keep these fairly short. And, well, 
looking forward to all the well all that we can discuss for part three and until next time uh thanks again bye hello it's simon from liverpool in the uk the second part does not disappoint it is just as good as the first and just as good as i remember when i was a kid um the first thing i want to talk about is the the nest reveal when the Arby's on the on in the trailer using the cameras and shows his usefulness, absolutely fantastic the way it's descri- described and written. And then when Sarah Harden's in the ocean and she's being swept into the cave, it was phenomenally well written. You could feel that panic. You could feel the exhaustion. You're willing to you're willing her on. I mean, we all knew that she was going to survive, but for while reading it, you were willing her. You were come on, get there, get there, and then. The whole chapter that was just devoted to talk of evolution, I thought was brilliant. Um, I always wondered where I uh, I had the the idea of evolution and uh, and Darwin's theory from such a young age. And it turns out it was from reading this book. But no, I really enjoyed that that chapter. And then Dodgson and uh, the others scrambling into into the nest. Um, uh, wonderful, especially that moment when the when the plug comes out of the sound box. It was agonising, a bit like when you watch your your favourite your favourite awkward comedy, and there's that moment where everybody goes, "Oh, it was it was it's very similar," but also it felt a little bit well deserved. Um, I'm looking forward to reading the rest. Can't wait to keep going, and I'll send you my thoughts on the third one. Keep going. Oh, and Ben, I took your advice and bought the visual history, so thank you very much for that as well. Bye. Hello, team. Brad here. The other Brad from Jurassic Minutes podcast with some thoughts on the Lost World, and I do apologise for the background noise, rain, and uh, beeping. I'm at work and trying to get this done in time for the record. Uh, this middle section of the Lost World, um, a lot of build up for what we're going to get later with the uh, the high hide attack, the trailers. Uh, I'm loving what Dodson's doing on the island, going after the eggs. I would have loved some sort of subplot like this in Jurassic Park Three, just to fill the movie out a bit more. Um, what else is there? Um, one of the biggest issues I have with this novel is, uh, at the start here, where, uh, we're in the lab, we're looking at, um, Eddie's all excited that the lab has power, and then as soon as the Trenosaurs turn up and we find Levine again, it's sort of dropped, and it's one of the last little threads, uh, still in the novel of, uh, Elliot Wu, that we get a couple more teasers later, uh, once we get back to the worker village. And it's just a shame because Malcolm's on the verge of seemingly discovering something he didn't know or or something along those lines. And all of a sudden, Doc, Doc, we've got him. He's on a bike. He's chasing the Trenosaur, <laughs> which does lead to some fantastic stuff with the, the T-Rexes. I would have loved to uh, loved to see some of that stuff turn up in a movie or live action at some point. And, yeah, your typical middle middle section of the book, a lot of build-up, building up to uh, what we're going to get later with some uh, great action scenes. Dogs and the T-Rexes at the nest. Um, we're going to get Eddie, bring the baby back to the trailer, and uh, we're going to get the trailer sequence, and then uh, returning to the worker village to uh, hunker down until morning. So cannot wait to get to the second part. Can't wait to hear your thoughts on the novel. And, uh, yeah, Brad from Jurassic Minutes, out. Hi, this is Andrew calling in to discuss the third configuration through to the fifth configuration of the Lost World novel. I love the glimpse into Engine's laboratory and the emails back and forth in regards to the prion-like illness that was affecting the dinosaurs. 
We, I work in a laboratory and we do something very similar to safeguard against contamination and I thought that added a real sense of realism that I really appreciated. I also appreciated the portrayal of the dinosaurs in this book. They're treated as animals and not movie monsters. You know, Thorne describes the Rexes as having huge fierce looking heads but having no sense of menace. Levine further stated that the Tyrannosaurus had a complex parenting behavior that probably lasted for months. They probably even taught their young how to hunt. Uh, we also get the really accurate description of a baby Tyrannosaurus, it being the size of a turkey, and the mention of feathers. It was really kind of groundbreaking for the time, but both the description of that and the parental behavior of theropods are still considered uh, correct today, some 20 years later. In this section, we get a better glimpse of character development. We see... How Levine is kind of a jerk and how he's probably the only person to be rescued and then complain about it. We get to see a darker side of Dodgson and how he's willing to, you know, do anything to get what he wants. I love how he slowly gets information from Sarah Harding, making sure this, you know, she's alone and nobody knows where she is. Like a predator before the kill, you know. Dodgson treats everyone around him as a means to an end, even if that means sacrificing them in the rest Rex nest, kind of like Basilson. I really enjoyed Sarah Harding. She's a self-reliant. She's a survivor. I loved her analysis of the raptor kill and the brutality of the raptors during the feeding frenzy. She remarked how the modern world animals have a hierarchy to feeding, but what she witnessed was just chaos, and it left her disturbed. I enjoyed the running theme of misinformation in this section, how Sarah tells Kelly that everything you hear is not always correct, and many times theory doesn't always pan out in the fieldwork. This dovetailed nicely with Dodgson, King, and Basselton. When Basselton put the theory of the direct visual cortex into the test, and it failed, unfortunately, and he was eaten. Um, I felt that the sound box, the use of the sound box, is the weakest part of this section. It just broke the fourth wall for me. It was too sci-fi, and it just, it was too unbelievable. And I really appreciated the avenue that the movie took instead. I loved it. Dodgson escaping the Rexes in this section. I mean, he was just so cool as a cucumber, you know, backing down in reverse down a muddy path in a Jeep with two Tyrannosaurus Rexes chasing him. It was just so cool, even for a bad guy. Finally, I loved how the forest configuration ends with Eddie bringing the baby Rex to the trailers and how the protagonists are really on the edge of chaos in this section where things only go from bad to worse. And I'm really looking forward to discussing this with you guys and really looking forward to the rest of the latter part of the novel and just i'm curious to see what everyone thinks and thank you for allowing me to, to discuss this bye-bye hello jurassic park book club it's connor here um host of dino dna and here are my thoughts on the second section of the lost world now where we kind of start out here i really really love um all of the stuff about the laboratory and the village and the uh, geothermal plant i think it paints a really good picture of that that overgrown jurassic aesthetic that the lost world movie captured so good and it really does like it places it anywhere really like this kind of overgrown facility like we've we've all seen those walking around like the you know the woods or like you know the wilderness like near where we live we always see those kind of overgrown buildings and I, I think more so than Jurassic Park this really feels like a relatable place that lots of us could imagine and, and imagine seeing dinosaurs around as well and um, 
And then obviously uh, inside the laboratory, I really like the, the, the subplot about DX and it, it really adds the fact that um, Jurassic Park in the novels was never a shiny uh, tourist ready facility, but had a lot of um, dark secrets and lots of deep rooted ethical and animal welfare problems. Um, it, it's a great plot point I would like to see brought into other Jurassic media, although I very much doubt it, given the state of the world at the moment. Um, and then the scenes with Malcolm and Levine together are hilarious, frustrating, all sorts of stuff. Just two academic heavyweights just going at each other with their massive egos. But th these sections, especially when they're in uh, high hide, have some of my favourite dialogue of when Malcolm is riling up Levine. It's it's absolutely hilarious. Like keep looking, it's really rather obvious. I I love I love that line. It's it's absolutely fantastic. And then of course we have um, Biosyn and Sarah arriving on the island. And this is where Dogson, you know, he was in the first novel. He's He's been in this one a bit. This is where he becomes a true villain, in my opinion. You know, knocking Sarah off the boat when he finds out that no one really knows she's right there. And um, also ordering his men to their you know to the the most dangerous place you could go with t-rex nest like basically to their deaths you know this 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 is a ruthless ruthless horrible person and I, i'd i'd love to see some of that ruthlessness come across in the upcoming dominion because he is truly just a nasty slimy piece of work and is a really well written villain uh, in this book um, also, I, I, I love that uh, on the note of Harding, I, I really like that she is written as this tough um, kind of role model for Kelly, which is great. Like the the Jurassic books and, and, and the films have never been massive in terms of representation um, of, of women, basically. There's like a one female character per movie in the, in the original films. And it's really, really cool that she is presented this way and, and um, a lot more competent than the Sarah that we meet in the film. And don't, don't get me wrong, I love Sarah Harding in the movie. She's fantastic with Julianne Moore playing her. But I really, really like this presentation of Sarah here. Uh, she almost reminds me of, of Zia in a way from Fallen Kingdom uh, just in the way that she she holds herself and the way she speaks to people she's 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 really really cool as a character and I, I really like what they do with her later on in this book as well but again ahead of myself then and basically to round out this section there's that um they're in a high hide and they see the raptors ambushing the triceratops herd and uh, this moment really really stuck with me when I first read this book as a kid um I remember drawing like a, a few, like a little series of, of illustrations based around my favourite moments from the novels and how I imagined them. And this was one of the first ones that I did of, of that, especially that image of, of the raptor jumping into the air and being illuminated by the lightning um, as it's going going towards the herd of Triceratops. I think that's just such a an amazing visual um, and... Yeah, just really, really cool. It really, <laughs> really makes you wish that you could be in that high hide with everyone else just watching this really cool, like, just wild animals that, that no one has seen just kind of living their lives. It's it's really fantastic. It's what Jurassic and the Lost World is all about, really. So, yeah, great section. I'm really looking forward to, to seeing how it all ends. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Uh, Brad here, just uh, submitting my thoughts for this 
portion of the book club. Sorry, I couldn't be a part of this officially. But um, I, I had some thoughts about the middle portion. Um, so, like I said, probably before I... Um, you know, I don't have a ton of recollection of what goes down in this novel outside of like, you know, key little points here and there. Um, so this middle portion, I was like, you know, I felt like I, I just didn't know what was coming. And same for the final portion as well. Even still, I'm like, what is going to happen? Um, <laughs> because it's so different from the movie. But um, initial thoughts, I think this this portion, like a, a lot happens but also not a ton happens in a way. Um, it really feels to me like a lot of, still like a lot of setup for maybe what's to come in the final portion. And I maybe that's because like a lot of my brain is like, oh, what about this? What about that? What about this? That I know happens in this book. So maybe I'm still thinking, oh, this feels a lot like a big setup. Um, but I... I you know, I can see a lot of the crossover between the book and the film here, even though it feels just like left of center. It's like, this is familiar, but it's completely different. <laughs> There's so many instances of that, um, which I'll, you know, I'll bring up in a second. But um, I, I, th I think there's also lots of potential, you know, storylines and, and uses that are things that you could use in future installments of Jurassic, whether that be Jurassic World Dominion, and, you know, maybe some of those things are already apparent, um, but, you know, even things maybe in the future of that, but, um, you know, and I also like that essentially the cliffhanger for this month's episode of the book club is like, guess what? Here's the baby Rex, <laughs> and it's in the trailer, so I, I kind of appreciated that, and it kind of leaves us with something to go to uh, next time around, but um, a few things I noticed. Um, there were, there were just like a lot of things that I felt like were akin to Camp Cretaceous. Um, you know, that you've got the two kids here and, uh, you know, having them do, do a lot of stuff on the computers and witnessing cameras and things going on in the cameras of it, uh, having the availability to direct people to run or do this or that. I felt like that was very akin to like season two of Camp Cretaceous where they, were down in the tunnels and they were able to direct their their campers, you know, around the island, um, and I thought that was cool. And then uh, you know, a slight a slight like nod, it felt like was Levine doing a lot of the work around the island and jotting things down in a notebook about how dinosaurs are reacting, you know, with each other. And then of course doing like the dino calls and stuff like that, and realizing oh that was probably a bad idea. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Um, but I thought that was pretty cool how some things felt akin to Camp Cretaceous. Um, and I know, like, it's interesting because a lot of people say, like, oh, you know, the the franchise has become become very kiddie or, or something like that. I'm, I, I don't agree with that sentiment. But, you know, I know the books are much darker than a lot of the stuff that we get these days even. But eh, sort of. Um, but I, I guess because we're seeing we're kind of inundated with, like, Camp Cretaceous and Lego and, you know, all these things that are maybe focused towards kids. But it just this book, I think, is just going to show that kids are really, really central to the story, even more than, you know, Jurassic Park is showing us as well um, in that novel. But uh, it's continuing continuing here. And I just like can't help but think 
you know, this has always been the way, uh, these kinds of stories like we're seeing with Camp Cretaceous. Um, but, you know, I found that there was a lot of uh, instances of like book to film. Um, we had like, you know, the talk of the five deaths and stuff like that. It really felt akin to the, f the film. Um, backpack pieces are found once they got to the island. It re really reminded me of them finding Sarah's backpack. Um, the kids in the trailer stowing away. You know, Arby and Kelly reminded me just of Kelly. You know, that's all we got. There needed to be a way for Kelly in the film to get to the island. And we didn't really get to see a lot of how that happened at all outside of just a lot of candy laying around. Um, but we get to kind of see how that was expanded upon and how it happened in the book. Um, what else do we get? We got the manufacturing plant, like the the lab that we see in Jurassic Park 3. So that was kind of cool. Obviously, it goes down very differently, but like it was kind of interesting to see how that was transported into Jurassic Park 3. And a lot of things actually were like like Levine hiding up in the trees from the raptors. I thought that was pretty interesting. It reminded me a lot of the Kirby's and um, Billy um, up in the trees. And what else do we get? Uh, we got, oh, there was that um, game trail moment um, with the Parasaurs, I think, running away from the raptors. Felt very akin to Jurassic Park 3 as well after they i think it was after they leave the lab in that movie right where the the raptors are kind of chasing through and running through the parasaurs reminded me a lot of that um and then of course like a, a pretty big reference is sarah passing out on the shore underneath like a, a big dinosaur and it turns out to be a stegosaurus but um you know it, she wakes up and it's like licking her face or something and, and slobbering all over her and, uh, you know, that's obviously a huge reference to, uh, well, that's not a reference, but this reference in Fallen Kingdom is a huge reference to this portion in the book where Owen is, a, you know, knocked out and uh, the Pachy, Pachy Rhinosaurus, yeah, I think that's what it was. Uh, no, Sinoceratops? No, yeah, it was a Sinoceratops. <laughs> the name of that creature and what it was supposed to be and the toys and all that stuff still messes me up uh yeah the cynoceratops um basically stomping around owen trying to wake him up as the lava is coming slobbering on his face all the same thing so i thought that was pretty pretty cool um there's talk of the dx virus and stuff like that so that's interesting can't wait to see more about how that's expanded upon um and there's also a lot of things i think uh you know you could see in the future um it, the one thing I, I thought was pretty interesting in this, I was like, this would be really cool to, to see how this is utilized or if it's utilized in some form or fashion. But we have, you know, the, the world that we have set up here in Dominion is the fact that dinosaurs are everywhere. And one thing that you tend to think about is how how is the ecosystem going to react to that? And, you know, they we constantly hear these things referenced from like, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, things in the trailer, Ian Malcolm saying or uh, creators saying behind the scenes and stuff like that. But they always talk about, like, how how will this impact the world? And in the book here, we there's a lot of conversation about plants and like them fighting back and evolving and changing because of the impact of dinosaurs. Um, and, and that was mostly talked about for like prehistoric times and how those plants changed so I, i'm i'm interested to see if 
we see anything about that evolving or, or anything along the lines in Dominion. I know it's not it's not going to be like that long of a period of time, so it'll be interesting to see if anything changes there or if there's any discussion around that. Um, so they also mentioned the like shark cage kind of thing that um, you know hangs below, I guess, the high hide, which you know we've made me- mention of the trailer for Dominion and how like it kind of references that. Um, that cage, which, you know, is, I guess, a reference to this thing as well. Um, but the cage from the Bull T-Rex from the Lost World toy. And we see that thing in, in the trailer where Maisie's, like, inside this cage. And I'm just like, oh, that's that sounds like a nice reference to whatever this, motion, this uh, moment in the film is. So I'm interested to see if there's parallels there. Um, and another thing I'm, I'm, I'm maybe hopeful to see is... You know, maybe maybe there's like a Howard King kind of character in Dominion. I don't know. You know, we know we're getting Dodgson and we know what that entails and Biosyn and all that. And this story doesn't necessarily seem to track with exactly what we're going to get in Dominion um, because we're kind of past that stage right now. So it's like instead of Dodgson doing all the stuff that he does in this movie, he would have done that a long time ago. But now, like, it seems like he's probably going to have a whole different plan in store. But I am still interested to see if things cross over, like little little moments, little character moments. And, you know, Howard King, like his second in command, I want to see if there's like a character like that or or uh, Basilton or, you know, anybody like that. Um, but Dodgson, you know, in this portion of the book is just real. Like he's been he, barely, I think, a part of the, the beginning but now he's like he's fully here. He's on he's on his way to the island, and then on the island, and we just see like his true evil showing. Um, you know, he obviously like pushes Sarah over the boat and like, yo, know, I didn't. You know, it was it was mis- I, it was a mistake. I didn't mean that. Didn't mean to happen. Whatever he says. Uh, you know, trying. I was trying to help her. Nah, nah, man, nah, man. You're you're evil. Um, so, and even Howard King was like. Dude, I saw you do it. Basilton, I think, was like, I, I didn't, I was downstairs. I didn't see anything. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm interested to see if if that side of Dodgson comes out in Dominion. Um, they obviously wanted to steal eggs in this movie, so I don't know. Maybe I mean in the book, but I don't know. Maybe that's the thing that happens in the movie. They maybe they want to go to these nests. I don't. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, that it just shows how, like, bad he is. He's just like, let's go to this island. Let's steal all these eggs. And I, maybe is that a parallel to Jurassic Park 3 with Billy? Eh, barely. Um, but, um, and then, of course, he abandons King and kind of, like, I guess falls out of the car into the jungle. I, I, I still don't really know what happened there. But, um... But yeah, he's just not a good guy. And I'm interested to see how much of that is on display in this movie. But um, but yeah, again, I just feel like a lot of setup happened here again. It feels like it's really just like, hey, uh, we're just going to get to this island and then we're going to set everything up. So I, <laughs> I don't really know. Like, there's just not a ton of like juicy, juicy stuff per se maybe i'm wrong i don't know just the way that i saw it um you know so many things are different here but there's like just tinges of of crossover and things that feel like hey this is the movie that i know um but i'm cool with that i I actually i actually dig like 
the different version of this. I think it's pretty cool. And I, I don't know. I, you know me, I'm always trying to find the comparisons to things that we could see and stuff like that in the future. But so far, not a ton because it is so close. It is like just adjacent to what we've gotten already. So I, I feel like the crossover potential in the future might be a little bit difficult. But hopefully the third portion of this book will give us a lot more of that kind of stuff as well. But yeah, I don't know if any of that made any sense, but um, but I appreciate everybody uh, taking a listen. And, and thank you so much to Ben and, uh, and Dave and Steven as well. This is, this is magnificent. Oh yeah, ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. But then later there's running and, and screaming. Hello, Banner and Brad, and all those following along with the Lost World Book Club here on the Jurassic Park podcast. This is Chris here from the UK here, and the IndieCast, once again, with a typically English winter cold uh, that I'm suffering, uh, but as well as some thoughts that I've been having reading the middle section of this brilliant sequel. First off, the map that I mentioned last time that's at the front of the 1995 Ballantine Books paperback edition that I'm reading from is being referred to a lot as we go deeper into the jungle of Site B for this part of the read. I'm so pleased to have that as I read on too, and similarly to the way the fact that that Fox illustrations in the folio editions of Michael Crichton's dinosaur novels help to build tension and atmosphere, this visual aid of the island map actually helps add to the enjoyment of my reading experience. Malcolm and Harding are my favourite characters in the story so far, as I'm sure Crichton intended them to be for his readers, but I get such a kick out of comparing and contrasting them to their on-screen personas in the movie version by Steven Spielberg. Those animals just walked by, did you see them? It was a family group, a pair bond and a sub-adult, long after the juvenile was nest found. Every egg clutch I've seen has got shells crushed and trampled. The hatchlings definitely stay in the birth environment for an extended period of time. That's conclusive. I can put that controversy to rest if I can just get a shot of the nest. Speaking of similarities between the written page and the film, the sequence I've enjoyed most so far is when Sarah encounters the Stegosaurus, a great wow moment that leaps off the page as she struggled to sort her brain and remember what that dinosaur is actually called. This novel really has a feel-good factor, as well as the requisite dinosaur scares and jumps as you read it, which I'm having such fun experiencing as I read along for the first time with this story. Wow. Is this even possible? What? This? What did you think you were going to document? What did you think you were going to see? Animals. Maybe, uh... Big iguanas. Fruitcakes. I'll sign off now before I sneeze into my microphone. <clears throat> but I didn't want to miss this chance to chime in for this second part of the book. And I'm really looking forward to hear what other reviewers from this great book community have to say. Keep up the fantastic podcasting, Ben. And thanks for getting us all reading a bit more. And of course, for getting us a bit more terrified too, as we progress through the pages of The Lost World. Hey Jurassic Park Podcast, hey Ben, I'm calling in to give my thoughts for the Jurassic Park or the Lost World Book Club. 
of the third configuration to the fifth. Now all this has some pretty cool stuff in it. Namely the whole, um, I like how it described both sides of the story, uh, Ian Malcolm, Eddie, and Thorne's side of the story, and then also talked a while, uh, like in the trailer, and the kid's side of the story, and I wonder, uh, what was what Arby saw? Was that real, or was it a dream? I guess we'll never really know, but it's interesting. I wonder what Michael Crichton re meant when he read that. Did he? Did they actually see the T-Rex parents, or was it a dream? Because Kelly was talking about it. My probably my favorite part in this. Uh, my two favorite parts. Well, first of all, would be the T-Rex chase on the motorcycle with Thorne and Levine. Be really cool to see that adapted to the movies. I I mean, we've got a motorcycle adapted to the movies. All we need now is a T-Rex uh, chasing somebody on a motorcycle. That'd be really cool to see. I really love that part of the book. I really like the, uh, the, what is it called? The v village, the worker village. That's really cool. Uh, we have... In the book, it's supposed to be way, way bigger than we see it in the movies. And I'm assuming in the Lost World movie, we only see it a little bit. But I also think that the whole thing with Dodson, King, and Basilton is really cool. Uh, the whole thing with Sarah getting thrown off the side of the boat... That is just something really cruel, and if they implement that kind of cruelty and corruptness with Dodson in this new movie, that'd be really good. Um, so, I also think that in the movie, I feel they could easily implement, like, his have his assistant there. I'd be, like... In the theaters, I'd be like, oh man, this is great. If we saw King. Basilton, I don't see how he could fit in, but King definitely, Howard King could definitely fit in there. There is um, one actor who seems about the same age as King is described who might play King. Uh, he's listed in the cast, but hasn't been named yet. Hopefully we do see King. We haven't seen any in footage shots of Dodson or anything like in the movie with a trailer that came out. But it's cool to see him now in the movie. His character in the book is really good. The whole part where they try to steal eggs, you can definitely see that he's a short-tempered, crook kind of guy that will get upset super easy and abandon everybody's... Um, everybody to die around him, that means he'll get out alive and safe. So, yeah, I hope, hopefully he'll get adapted like that to the movies. Basilton's death was pretty gruesome and interesting, and it seems one of the more, like, the whole kids watching that through the monitors, that's definitely gonna scar them. Um, they're not never gonna forget that, it's... 
if I was there in their position, that'd be something just horrible. But there's a lot of cool stuff. All the cool dinosaurs we get to see. I think we see... I think we see um, the T-Rex attack in this part. Uh, where the T-Rex attacks the Jeep with Dodson and King. That is... That whole part is really, really good. I mean... That's probably one of the most intense moments. One of the moments in the book that I feel like, man, it feels like you're there watching the movie, or as if this was a movie and you're actually there watching it, seeing this happen, you're in the car. It definitely is one of those very m moments like that. And yeah, that's my thoughts. My favorite parts of this, these uh, configurations and stuff. So yeah, see y'all later. Thank you so, so much for listening to the 309th episode of the Jurassic Park podcast. Um, of course, a huge thank you goes out to Ben for conducting these interviews and and uh, being a uh, scheduling master here. I know uh, we you know we tried to do a lot of this stuff way ahead of time, especially with the book club. Ben really wanted to get all of this stuff recorded. And we set a nice firm date. Uh, I forget. It was in December, I think, when we initially wanted to record. And then I, I think I just got overloaded. Dave was good to go. And then something happened with Steven and we weren't able to record all together. So I'm bummed about that. Maybe uh, whatever, the evolution of Claire. Maybe we'll do that <laughs> all together once again. But uh, thank you so much to Ben for being able to overcome so many issues this time around and get this one recorded and uh, really produce some amazing content. So thank you uh, to Ben and thank you to uh, Jurassic Dave for coming on here once again. Uh, I, I miss chatting with you, but uh, I would I would love to do it yet again because I love all of your thoughts and where you're coming from from this episode. So thank you so much to Jurassic Dave. Make sure to find his information in the show notes. And also, of course, to Stephen Ray Morris. I, I missed you too. I, I, I'm, I'm so bummed. What am I going to do? We, we got to record again sometime, all of us. But uh, always love Stephen's input on these episodes. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much to both of them. And of course, I can't help but thank each and every person that uh, that sent in their thoughts on this episode. You know, that's what's so special, I think, about these book clubs is, you know, it's your outlet as well, not just us to sit here and talk about things, but it's yours as well to uh, tell people what you think about these novels because, you know, how often do you get uh, the chance to write in or call in and say what you think about uh, a book written so long ago? Uh, so hopefully you enjoyed that chance, and uh, we can't wait to hear from everybody else next time around, of course. So please get your thoughts and feelings in on the final portion of The Lost World. I can't believe we are already at the end of this book club. Hopefully we'll have a few follow-up episodes and things maybe down the line, but... Uh, but the Lost World portion, the actual analysis of the book is almost done. But uh, please get your thoughts and feelings in on the final portion, which is the fifth uh, configuration through to the end. Have those in by March 12th, 
for the March 14th episode, so make sure to get them in by March 12th. Uh, send those over to Jurassic Park Book Club at gmail.com, and we will be sure to add them to the upcoming episode. And lastly, here before we head out, uh, as I was recording this uh, this segment here, or this, this podcast, um, I got the news over on Twitter that Ivan Reitman, the director of Ghostbusters, um, had passed away. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Ivan and just say thank you so much uh, for producing, you know, a really, really incredible world that I think was one of the first worlds, you know, when we talk about these, these film universes and things that... Uh, you know, really got us talking about stuff like this each and every week. Um, Ivan was able to make one of the first that really got me hooked, you know, Ghostbusters. And uh, between those those first two movies and then the 2016 one, which, you know, I know was different. And and uh, and I love that one just as much, but it's still the world. He still feels real. And and then, of course, Ghostbusters Afterlife and, and him playing such a major role in that movie as well with his son, also directing it uh it's just it's a legacy that uh really made an impact on me so i just wanted to give a shout out to ivan reitman and his family and everybody else and just say uh you're certainly going to be missed i'm i am very much bummed out but uh thank you so much for producing some amazing content because uh now i'm passing it on to my son so i i really really appreciate it but uh again thank you so much for listening to this episode to uh to 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 send us off here i just wanted to say you know as always be kind try to be kind i know it's been a rough time out there on social media um especially in the jurassic fandom uh it's been rough over the past uh well it's been rough over the past little while it's been a while um but last week was certainly a trying time and it seems to be carrying over unfortunately but uh, we'll deal with it the best we can and uh, try to be kind to each and every person that you come into contact with out there. And of course, we want you all to stay safe, stay Jurassic, and uh, get excited. Jurassic World Dominion is uh, right around the corner, and I am so, so pumped. So thank you so much for listening to this one. Be sure to go give us a review over on Apple Podcasts, and uh, we will read those on episodes that are not well over three hours long, but I appreciate it. Thank you again to everybody. I'm going to go ahead and hand it off to myself for the outro. Take it away. Saddle up. Let's get this movable feast underway. Be sure to give us a follow over on Twitter, at Jurassic Park Pod, and myself, at Brad Jost. Also on Facebook and Instagram, at Jurassic Park Podcast. Don't forget to join the Jurassic Park Podcast group on Facebook. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, our website, or wherever else podcasts are found. So be sure to follow along. Also, don't miss our live streams, toy hunts, reviews, in-depth bonus content, gameplay, event and theme park coverage, and much more on our YouTube channel. If you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We will read your reviews at the end of most episodes, so be sure to spare no expense. Find us on the web at JurassicParkPodcast.com, where you'll find today's episode show notes, articles, contributor bios, and so much more. If you want to get a hold of us, you can fill out the contact form on our website or send emails to JurassicParkPod at gmail.com. We're always looking for new segments, contributors, mailbag submissions, or anybody who just wants to say hello. Feel free to call our voicemail line at any time to leave us a message. That number is 732-825-7763. Make sure to be kind to everybody and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening. 
and enjoy. Five minutes. Drop what you're doing and leave now.